That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog, because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. I realized something today that I had never thought about before. Am I a little nutty for never having realized this? You tell me. But I grew up a San Francisco 49ers fan. And obviously, you know, I my childhood was not spent with the 49ers playing into the playoffs and being this great team. In fact, it was quite the opposite. The Pittsburgh Steelers of the 1970s and 80s and the Dallas Cowboys of the 1970s and 80s dominated, largely dominated the landscape. Made recess at my elementary school, it made it a tough endeavor, right? Like, you know, every all my friends were front runners. I can remember uh, a lot of Dallas Cowboys and a lot of Pittsburgh Steelers fans around my playground. Everybody wanted to be Terry Bradshaw or Roger Staubach or Danny White or Lynn Swan or John Stallworth during uh, recess. And I was left sort of uh, reenacting Paul Hofer and Earl Cooper and until the 49ers finally broke through the 1982 NFC Championship game. You may remember the 49ers had a big play and they uh, named it the catch. Dwight Clark, Joe Montana from six yards away. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Vin Scully was one of the uh, broadcasters on the call that day. See a pick of some kind on the right side, possibly. Montana looking, looking, throwing in the end zone. Dwight Clark! There it is, Vin Scully, Candlestick Park, Dwight Clark, six yard touchdown reception, corner of the end zone over Everson Walls. I remember I was in my parents' living room. And I, uh, they had, uh, you know, a 1970s ranch style house and I burst out the sliding doors on that living room into the backyard and ran around like crazy and came back inside just in time to realize in horror that the Dallas Cowboys were driving. The ensuing kickoff, a squib kick by Ray Wershing was returned by the Cowboys. Then, uh, Roger Staubach, uh, con- or excuse me, Danny White connected on a, on a, uh, a, a pass that uh, brought the ball near midfield, and the 49ers were in a little bit of trouble as the clock was ticking down. And I remember, you know, like, like in today's NFL, you all know, and we know that it comes down to one score, and can the defense get a stop? And, but in the NFL of the 19, early 1980s, it was the Dallas Cowboys time until it wasn't. And it was a play 
that that I hadn't really thought much about. And maybe this makes me a bad 49ers fan. Because I, I had thought all about Dwight Clark and that touchdown reception and the ensuing Super Bowl in Pontiac, Michigan, and the uh, the 49ers beating the Cincinnati Bengals. And it was uh, Bill Walsh, of course, and Joe Montana. And I hadn't given much thought to the two players who caused the fumble because Danny White was sacked or nearly sacked by a defensive end named Lawrence Pillars. And he caused the fumble, and Jim Stuckey, another defensive tackle, jumped on the ball, 49ers recovered, and two snaps later, kneeled down by Joe Montana, the 49ers were going to the Super Bowl. Now, that shaped my childhood. And I'm here to tell you that, like, you know, a lot of sports fans, we all know that there's a sliding doors element to sports, that what if this didn't happen? What ifs are rampant sports? What if... Lawrence Pillars doesn't strip the ball from Danny White. What if Jim Stuckey doesn't fall on it? And, you know, what if the Dallas Cowboys run continues? Is Joe Montana Joe Montana? Is Ronnie Lott Ronnie Lott? Are my childhood memories and the ability that I had to walk across my elementary school playground a little taller that, that ensuing Monday, is it all different for me? And so I got to thinking about Lawrence Pillars, a player I had not thought about since the 1980s and i thought where is he today what is he doing and i found a story that was written about him from several years ago about him uh, you know essentially going back to college getting his degree making good on a promise he made to his mother and you know he had bought a subway sandwich shop after playing in the nfl he had bought a trucking company and so i went in search of lawrence pillars Get today him on the show and i tracked him down and found him in his car. And I, I dialed the number. He answered, and he says, uh, hello. And I said, is this more or less like who's asking? And I said, you know, hey, I uh, I uh, radio show. I write a sports column. Live in the Pacific Northwest. Grew up a big 49er fan. I said, you know, I'd love to have you on my show. And so Lawrence Pillars tells me, because the Niners are playing in the Super Bowl in Vegas this week, that he is in his car on his way to Vegas. And so Lawrence Pillars says, can you call me after 5 o'clock today? I should be in Vegas by 5 o'clock. I will have a beer in my hand, and I will tell stories. Lawrence Pillars will be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour. But it got me thinking about heroes and unsung heroes. Because I automatically go, when people ask me who is my favorite 49er, I'll say Ronnie Lott. I'll say Jerry Rice. I'll say Joe Montana. I'll say Dwight Clark. You think about the heroes that you had growing up and the, the your favorite players. But the unsung heroes are players like Lawrence Pillars, who make a play, who um, you know largely go unnoticed. I don't even know if you know who Lawrence Pillars is, but I knew the name. And I was like, oh, yeah, number 65, defensive end for the 49ers. He was a really good player, but he wasn't a star player by Niners standards. Uh, who are the heroes that you grew up rooting for? And it's okay if you call in and say Roger Staubach was your guy, or Danny White is your guy, or Drew Pearson, or Everson Walls is your guy, or Terry, uh, you know, Terry Bradshaw is your guy. That's okay. But I want to know your heroes and I want to know your unsung heroes. 503-417-7575. Give me your heroes and your unsung heroes. Because when I think about it, and it doesn't have to be limited to the NFL. But when I think about it from an NFL standpoint, it was guys like Ronnie Lott, Jerry Rice, Roger Craig, 
Joe Montana. They got all the limelight. They won the MVP awards, or they became you know the league leaders in their categories. But it was largely players like uh, you know uh, Lawrence Pillars, who and Jim Stuckey, who did a lot of the dirty work, and a linebacker by the name of Mike Walters, who you know went to the University of Oregon, and guys like that who played on those teams that I went, man, they were such a part of my childhood, such a part of me growing up as a sports fan, and I probably don't give them enough due. I want to know who yours are. 503-417-7575. Stephen, now, who does that jar in your mind? Heroes and unsung heroes. Yeah, I'm actually one of those guys that became a Cowboy. Like, you know, I was born in 87, and I became a Cowboys fan uh, early 90s, yeah, when they were winning Super Bowls. With, it was the Bills and the Cowboys, and I remember as a kid, because there's no team here in Oregon. And so I wasn't necessarily a Seahawks fan. My dad grew up a Packer fan. So I said, you know what, whoever wins the Super Bowl between the Bills and the Cowboys, uh, that, that's oh, what I'm wow. choosing. That's what I'm choosing. And so the Cowboys won, so I ended up being a Cowboy fan. So Emmett Smith was my guy. Like, I love Emmett Smith. I thought he was the best. You know, I had his jersey. Was that the wide right game? Uh, no, this was Norwood. The, no, this was the first one when they, uh, okay. they absolutely dominated them, like you know, fifty yeah. something to twenty or whatever, something like that. And so I was, I was a big Cowboy fan. So I was Evan Smith guy. That was my hero. And then they go and they get Dion. Like I was a big Dion guy when he got brought to Dallas, um, as well. Then when I got older, I realized, well, I don't like any of these players on the Cowboys, so I can't be a Cowboy fan. But as a kid, that's who it was. I was all about the Cowboys. Those were the guys that I looked up to. Those were the. Right, but so who's the hero, and then maybe give me an unsung hero? Well, for, that you know is a less heralded player that you really like. Yeah, it would have been Emmett Smith for me. Like that's the hero for me. Like I watched that guy, and I'm like, man, he, he this is the best the best player in the NFL. Like that's how I thought about it growing up. And then I always liked Darren Woodson. Like I know he was a, he's yeah. a big time player, but like the way that he'd hit people, the way that he'd go about his business, the way he always got it done. That that was my guy on defense was Darren Woodson, man. He he was a baller. But uh Emmett, Emmett was the man, John. I, whatever would you say? Cowboys the Cowboys were good and it was because of Emmett Smith. Can't can't, I, can't I, tell me that either way. I I can remember going to school and it was a big deal. Like if your NFL team had won that weekend or uh in or was playing in Monday night football, it was all anybody was talking about in elementary school. And I'm talking about third, fourth, fifth grade. It's maybe maybe the height of NFL popularity on the playground. And I can also remember that we had Sears and J.C. Penney. We had these catalog stores, kids, that uh, we used to go into, and they'd have a catalog, and you could pick out what you wanted. Didn't have Amazon. We didn't have overnight delivery. We didn't have. We had to pick out the jersey in the catalog, and it always looked cooler in the catalog. And I remember picking out a 49ers jersey, and for whatever reason, the Niners jersey that they offered in the catalog was number 11. You know, and uh, I just thought, you know, it's just a generic number 11 jersey. So I wore this Niners jersey to school, and my friends were Cowboys fans. They were they were Steelers fans, and they were Cowboys and Steelers fans because those teams won. Like, they won like bananas, and anybody who's a child of the 70s and 80s understands that. Let's go to the phones. Mark's in Portland. Mark, what do you got? Well, first of all, unfortunately for me, I was uh, I grew up in the 60s, and when you look at the Cowboys, John, the Packers were the best team of the '60s, but they're the team. The second best team was Dallas. In the '70s, it was Pittsburgh and Dallas. In the '80s, it was San Francisco and Dallas. And then in the '90s, it was Dallas as the number one team. So for 40 years, the Cowboys were in the top two. So that's why there was a lot of Cowboy fans, and there still is, you know, today because of that. But my. Uh, for me, it was the you know the play that changed it all for me was Franco's immaculate reception. He's an Italian guy. He's, he's you know looks like a Greek god, and he's 230 pounds with great speed. And the Steelers that was their first playoff win uh, in 40 years. So he he was 
a, a big key, probably the key to that offense, especially the first couple of Super Bowls, is the MVP. But the guy that kind of stayed in the background that was, you know, almost as valuable was Rocky Blyer. And he just, yes. he, he, military guy with his part of his foot blown off, and nobody really gave him a chance to have much of a football career. And he was a great player that played his role beautifully. So, um, yeah, I would say uh, Rocky Blyer was my unsung hero. And, yeah. and another guy that should Good be in call. the Hall of Fame, too. Elsie Greenwood is yeah. another guy that I think should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, he didn't get the credit because when you thought about those Steelers teams, you thought about Bradshaw, you would think about Franco Harris, you would certainly think about Lynn Swan and then John Stallworth, and you had a guy like Rocky Blyer who had shrapnel in his legs and you know had uh, had served his country. And that guy, you know, he's a great story, but yeah, that's perfect for an unsung hero. 503-417-7575 is the number. Mike's in Canby. Mike, what do you have? Hey, John, how are you? Love your I'm show. I'm well. Thank you. Hey, my uh, my hero, uh, so I moved to Portland in 1997 from Chicago, but undoubtedly Walter Payton, one of the most magical, just energetic running backs I've ever experienced in my life. And, um and then uh, as far as unsung hero, this one actually is a newly acquired one. Um, this guy is, is a, a player, a golf member at my club, but he played on a few of those 49er Super Bowl champ teams. guy that probably nobody really remembers, that was Mike Walter. Oh, yeah. He was a linebacker. Yep, and, Oregon, uh, or- University of Oregon. Yep, yep. So he's he, back in Oregon, big Ducks fan, and uh, and and a pretty dang good golfer. Yeah, look, I remember Mike Walter as a player, and you're right about him kind of flying under the radar because even under, you know, he played on three Super Bowl teams for the 49ers, and he really played from about 84 to 94, as I remember. There's a decade there where they won three championships, but all of the talk in those teams was about Jerry Rice and, um, you know, the transition from Joe Montana and certainly Ronnie Lott, Roger Craig, and those guys. Uh, I would definitely include Mike Walter as an unsung hero on those teams. And, um, frankly, the Niners picked him up on on waivers. And they had originally played him as a backup to Hacksaw Reynolds. And, you know, he was a, uh, you know, he's a really good special teams player who morphed into the starting linebacker position in 1985. And, you know, uh, three Super Bowls, 11 seasons in the NFL. That's a good career. Mike's in Dallas. Mike, welcome to the conversation. Hey, thanks. I'm a Cowboys fan all my life. My dad liked the Cowboys because they had so many Oregon players. Mel Renfro was one. Bob Lilly. Uh, fantastic. So, but I was a big uh, Two Tall Jones fan back in the 70s. Yeah. And, uh, matter of fact, I think the catch was over the top of him. <laughs> I think and, it was over. Uh, it was okay. over Everson Walls. Everson Walls was the defensive oh, yeah. back. But, yeah, who was guarding in the end zone. Yeah, yeah but yeah. I think the line. If you go back oh. and look at the play, I think Tuttle's right in the front there. <laughs> so, so uh, all Cowboys fans kind of hate that play, but, <laughs> but well, because you know it why? A, because it marked sort of the end of an era of Cowboys football. The Cowboys had dominated, and suddenly the Niners were to be reckoned with. Now the Cowboys hung around. You know, they fell off for a time, but hung around and then made a resurgence in the 90s. But I got to thinking today, like, you know, maybe it's 
time we started thinking about some of the unsung heroes. Like, certainly, when you think about the 1977 Blazers championship team, you think about players like Bill Walton. But I also am thinking, like, do the Blazers win that championship without Maurice Lucas? Probably not. Do they win that championship without, you know, Bobby Gross or Lionel Hollins? Probably not. Like, you know, you think about who the players are who are in that supporting cast. Certainly when you talk about Blazers history, there's that. I think you can also look at, you know, any championship team, and you can find unsung heroes if you look hard enough. So we're going to have one on the show today. Of course, it's Super Bowl week. We're going to be in and around the Super Bowl all week long. Uh, we're going to go in the 5 o'clock hour, and we will be visiting with Lawrence Pillars. Up next, Punch and Audio. we got great sound. We're going to catch you up on everything going on in sports. I'm excited for this uh, this week's Super Bowl. We occasionally will go out to breakfast, and we go to one of these uh, places that the kids like. It's a pancake place where you uh, you basically do all the cooking yourself. I don't know how the restaurant gets away with that. They they turn it into fun for the kids. So there's the hot plate on your uh, table, and uh, then you you know you you pour out the uh, the pancakes batter on the on the thing, and you cook it yourself. And the kids think it's fun, and. Uh, the uh, server um, noticed that I was wearing a sweatshirt on Sunday morning that was a 40, had a 49ers logo on it. And the uh, and by the way, I I occasionally wear the sweatshirt, but I know I've never gotten like consistent feedback the way I did on Sunday. I had one guy who had a uh, 49ers bumper sticker on his car was yelling at me. This is the year. <laughs> and I had somebody else go good luck like I was playing in the game. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> like, I, you know, like, you know, it, like, you know, I, yeah, I'm going to be watching in my living room. But, um, but the server was really interesting. She came up at the end and she says, uh, you know, who do you think is going to win? You like your team. And I said, I do. I said, I think, uh, I think they win a higher scoring game, high 20s, maybe in the 30s. And uh, she says, uh, that's cool. And I said, are you going to watch? Who are you rooting for? Because I didn't immediately get back, go Niners, right? And so she says, I'm rooting for Taylor Swift's team. And the girls at the table almost fell over, like kind of giggling about it. And then we got into a deep discussion about, you know, why, uh, you know, what, like, this is really interesting. Like, you know, have you always been into the Super Bowl? She says, no, my boyfriend's into it. I'm not really into it, but uh, this year I'm going to watch. I can't wait to watch, and it's because of Taylor Swift. And I thought, well, you know what? For all the belly aching that a lot of us do about you know the Swifties getting in on the action, this is good for the NFL that it's bringing another fan into the room. And then she said, you know, I think that it's true love between Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. And I said, I feel the same way. Like, why would you go through the motions if uh, this isn't what you want to do. And then I was joking, and I said to her, Steve, and I said, you know, I think I think Kelsey's going to get down on a knee after he gets a first down, and he's going to pop the question to her. And she says, you think so? <laughs> and I said, no, I don't know. Like, I have no inside intel on that. But um, the conversation continued, and I, and I said, well, she's at the age. If she wants to have kids, you know, maybe she wants to get married. And, 
And she says, I don't know how old she is. And my nine-year-old goes, she's 34. <laughs> like, right, like, uh, like she just looked up Wikipedia or something. There's conversations that are happening right now that have never before in the history of the NFL happened. There are three advertisers who are going to be advertising in the game, including L'Oreal and Dove and another cosmetics company that are spending money on Super Bowl commercials for the first time. There are going to be, it's going to be record-breaking ratings. I can tell you that already because you have new fans watching. This, the audience is swelling. But um, it's just, uh, it's a, there's a different feel. And there's also some prop bets that are being, uh, some casinos are uh, doing, offering prop bets on Taylor Swift. I just don't like, I don't like those kinds of prop bets that don't have anything to do with the game. I don't like, um, I don't like like betting on whether what color the Gatorade's going to be or what the what the uh, coin toss outcome is going to be, um, and so I, I I just think we stay away from it. Uh, my friend Jay Cornegay, who is the VP of Operations at Westgate, said he wanted to put an over under on how many times he gets asked about the prop bets for Taylor Swift. So um, a couple of the casinos are getting creative. One has a wager called Shake It Off. Um, I read that in the New York Times today. Uh, it involves betting on a player to score a touchdown after they've fumbled earlier in the game. So they're calling that a shake-it-off <laughs> wager as a novelty bet. I think I'll stay away from those and uh, keep it to the game action. That's where my interest is. But I, I don't begrudge you. If you are somebody who's coming to this game for the first time because of um, Taylor Swift, I'm okay with it. But I don't want it to be the focus of the game. That said, let's play some punch it audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, Ross Tucker. On the Dan Patrick Show in Las Vegas today, says he does not understand why the 49ers are a two-point favorite in the Super Bowl. He's speaking for a lot of people. There's a lot of people out there that think the Chiefs are going to win this game. Here's Ross Tucker. Punch it. I have no idea why the 49ers are favored in this game. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, you watch the three Chiefs playoff games, Dan. They were the better team in all three, including at Buffalo, at Baltimore. Yeah. Meanwhile, the Niners, I mean, I can think of... Six plays, maybe, off the top of my head against the Packers, where if that went the other way, Keyshawn Nixon dropped the pick, Darnell Savage dropped the pick, the Packers would have won. And then the Lions were bashing the Niners' brains in until they had, that might have been one of the most painful collapses, meltdowns that I've ever seen. And I'm not even, I'm not like a Lions fan, but that was hard to watch. So anyway, I just said it doesn't seem logical to me that the 49ers would be favored. Now, they might win. But I guess my point would be, if these teams played ten times, I think the Chiefs win seven, maybe eight. I, I think I agree a little bit with Ross Tucker. Throughout the playoffs, I've watched the Niners. They haven't played well. They played a clunky game against the Packers. They were terrible in the first half against the Detroit Lions. And yet they're 2-0 and in those games. And I keep looking at that like, objectively... It surprises me that a team that could give a less-than-best effort is in the Super Bowl. But the 49ers have done exactly that. I think they've played 
three really good quarters out of the eight that they have played in the playoffs. And still somehow they find themselves in position. Is it lucky? I'm not going to say lucky in sports. Is it fortunate? Absolutely. Now, against Kansas City, they're not going to be able to get away with that. And I still am looking back to the end of the season. The Niners did not play well down the stretch, even though I thought they were the best team. Maybe they're just that talented that they can get away with a less-than-good effort against most teams and, and win. They will not be able to get away with that against the Kansas City Chiefs. And part of that is Patrick Mahomes. Mike Golick talking about Mahomes. Is he in the conversation of greatest quarterback of all time? Punch it. You, you look at athletes back in the day to now, they're just better athletes, and but that always doesn't make them better. But with Pat, you're getting that rare combination of he's a better athlete than a lot of quarterbacks and better than a lot of quarterbacks. Am I going to put him in the top two right now? No, I'm going to wait because I'm going to give the players before him the benefit of the doubt of their longevity. Okay, Pat's been great right out of the gate, but let's let's let it continue to happen. He's I don't know if he'll get to, to Tom's statistical area of of postseasons and Super Bowls. So I'm going to wait on that. But look, I'll put it this way: he's in the team picture right now. Two-time Super Bowl champion, two-time Super Bowl MVP, two-time league MVP. I think he's going to be in that conversation if he's not already in that conversation. But I'm not going to put him in front of Tom Brady, who's got more Super Bowls. And I'm still not going to put him in front of like a guy like Joe Montana, who won four Super Bowls and is a three-time Super Bowl MVP and two-time league MVP. But he's flirting around that conversation. Like he's walked into the room if he's not in the conversation. And, and you're, have, you're having to evaluate Patrick Mahomes through that prism. I do think we need to wait. Let's see what he does in this game. Let's see how his career unfolds. You know, but if Patrick Mahomes loses this Super Bowl, you know, he's in he's in the conversation for is he among the best five or seven quarterbacks to ever play? If he never gets back there again? I mean he's in that conversation. And I think if you're picking players in their prime and you had to redraft everybody in their prime Maybe Brady goes first. Is Patrick Mahomes or Joe Montana your number? I don't know. I mean, he's in the conversation right now. Adam Schefter says the 49ers are not happy with their practice field. Super Bowl week. Here's Adam Schefter. Punch it. Well, I can tell you, having spoken to various Niners people already, they don't seem particularly pleased. Now, they're going to be on the practice field for the first time today at noon Pacific, but there already have been complaints that there are seams in the practice field, that it feels like they're walking around on a sponge. I guess the NFL last week laid sod on top of the field turf, and this has nothing to do with UNLV. UNLV is kind of an innocent bystander in this, and the league has rules or bylaws or procedures that are set up that call for the Super Bowl practice fields to be checked out and mandated by December. And last week, they're laying the turf on there. Now, the league is saying it's not a player's safety health issue, not in violation, all those things. That's fine. I can tell you the Niners are not happy with the practice conditions of that field that the league is in charge of maintaining. Now, they have a hardness score 
for the fields. A hardness score that by league standards has to be 70 or above. Average in the league is 78. The hardness score for the field, the 49ers say, the practice field is in the 50s. Now, the Chiefs are practicing at the Raiders training facility. There have been no remarks there. But uh, this is not the first time there have been inconsistencies with playing surfaces at the Super Bowl. Last year, the Eagles and Chiefs both complained about the field conditions. Both teams were slipping on that uh, grass field at State Farm Stadium. But uh, it just, it's kind of like the most Vegas thing ever. Hey, we've got everything covered except the grass. You know what I mean? It's like they've thought of everything. Except the grass. But why can't you know? the NFL figure this out? Because last Super Bowl, the actual game, everyone was slipping and sliding. Now we're talking about this year. Like, why can't the NFL figure out how to put the right grass on the fields? I don't. I just don't get it. Or here's the thing: if you're gonna do, you're gonna do it this way. Why not have the teams just stagger their practice times? You know, and you know, we're both gonna work out at the Raiders facility. Nobody's gonna be at a disadvantage. I just don't want anybody after the game, one way or the other saying something was caused by the fact that, you know, the fields weren't the same. Uh, but it's just stupid. It's just, it's dumb. And, you know, I'm sure we're going to hear more about this. The Niners, the headlines today are the Niners are unhappy about the grass. But the real headline is the NFL doesn't have its act together when it comes to the actual game. It's too busy worried about the halftime show and the sponsors. Scott Van Pelt talking about Brock Purdy. Punch it. When it comes to football, what are these these guys that if I've learned anything being around him, it's like, what what's the tape show you? And Purdy put some pretty good stuff on tape, game, uh, you know, often game after game. And then, you know, they got beat by Baltimore and he turned it over some. And then he's like, well, that's it. He sucks. I mean, I don't think that's fair, but we're, we're, we're so often not fair. We're so often not reasonable. We're going to take the most recent thing and turn it into what you what you are as a player so if he wins if they win yes. then that means he gets to be a guy right and if they don't does that mean it's his fault it's all his fault in all his credit whatever happens to brock purdy but van pelt's right the players will tell you go to the tape look at the tape don't look at where they were drafted look at the tape and in the end i think brock purdy's story Last year it was they couldn't get to the Super Bowl because Purdy got hurt. This year they're there. If he delivers a championship, Purdy's going to elevate his stock and elevate his profile. And if he doesn't, there will be questions about, you know, is he good enough depending on whether or not he, you know, what how he plays in the game. Is he good enough to get him there? Is he good enough to get him over the top? I think he's a better player than Jimmy Garoppolo. I think his teammates rally around him a little better. I think he is uh, less gun-shy in the pocket. Uses his feet better. Um, I think he's got a little bit of metal to him, and I like him for that reason. But this is a big game for Brock Purdy, not just for the Niners. Big game for Purdy. Lincoln Riley. Talking about Cliff Kingsbury and Caleb Williams. Kingsbury was hired as the offensive coordinator of the Washington Commanders. They happen to have the second pick. He's talking about a reunion or... A union between Caleb Williams and Cliff Kingsbury. Punch it. You know, it's great having Coach Kingsbury in the room with us. Uh, he's a tremendous person, a tremendous coach. Uh, commanders are getting a great one. I can't wait to see what, what he and Coach Quinn do there together. Um, obviously, you know, Caleb's got strong ties to that area. Um, but 
there's a lot of things certainly out of all their control on it. Would it be cool to see those guys reunite? Yes, but I, I don't, I, you know, I don't think that there's anything necessarily in the works by any stretch, right? This, this NFL draft, there's going to be a lot that's going to that's going to change and transpire between now and then. Uh, it would be cool to see them work together, but I, I know at the same point, uh, you know, those guys are both individually very good at what they do and they're going to be very successful. Look, I, I think Caleb Williams is going to be a really good pro. But so much of being a really good pro and taking it, taking that next step in the NFL really is about the situation you're in. I think it has less to do with Kingsbury than it does just the commander's organization. That is That organization, infected by Daniel Snyder, has not had its act together. That would concern me. It concerns me about any of the teams picking high in the draft, usually. The Bears, too. Like, these aren't... These aren't organizations that generally have it together. And the Detroit Lions know what I'm talking about. Like, the Lions fans are heartbroken over what happened in the NFC title game, in part because they endured decades of mismanagement, bad picks, and a system that just wasn't able to sustain anything. Um, You know, I, I do worry about quarterbacks getting picked high. I mean, we've seen it happen. Marcus Mariota. Jameis Winston, Joey Harrington. We've seen top picks get thrown to the dogs. And, uh, you know, including the Carolina Panthers in the last make, couple seasons. Doesn't it make sense for Washington, though, bring in a Cliff Kingsbury to then make a trade and try to get up to number one to get Caleb just to get some energy in that fan base and kind of get the Daniel Snyder taste out of their mouth? I think they need energy. I think Williams is the right pick if he's there, too. But I also don't trust the commanders any one bit. I just don't. But I, I, I think you're right. But I think the Detroit Lions needed an infusion of energy in the 1990s and 2000, early 2000s, and they just couldn't get it together. Julian Edelman, former Patriot, talking about Bill Belichick, who was not hired during this recent cycle punch it it just tells me that not everyone's really about winning in this in this in this uh this league if you're not gonna hire bill bell i you know that, that it's crazy I, I i yeah he's tough yeah he it, it, he is a force to work with but any team that brings him in instantly gets like 35 percent better just off rip because of the For amount sure. of knowledge he knows, the amount of experience that he has. He's seen everything through the game. And yes, he's had his struggles these last couple of years, but this is a quarterback league. Okay. You got to find a quarterback regardless of where you are. And, you know, he has, he wasn't able to do that. So, you know, that is a true statement with, you know, what Danny said. We, we played for Tom, you know, we, we worked with Bill, but he also, he was kind of just like, he was like the older uncle or 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 principal that you liked. He gave you some wisdom here and there, but you were you were scared of <laughs> because you know he, he always kept you on thin ice because he you always had to be prepared around him. So it just tells me that the league ain't not every organization is trying to win. Well, also though, you know, to be fair to the teams that didn't hire Bill Belichick, a lot of them went younger, including the Seahawks, especially the Seahawks. Belichick's 71. They weren't going to replace 72-year-old Pete Carroll with 71-year-old Bill Belichick. And then beyond that, I think, you know, there's some reasonable doubt about Belichick given the performance of the Patriots without Tom Brady. It's, you know, it was just, 
you know, I give credit to Belichick for winning so many games, but his record of 82 and 98 without Brady as his quarterback after the 2023 season, it's a bit of an indictment. I mean, that's what a lot of organizations were firing their other coaches for. I would ideally, if I'm an NFL team, love to have Bill Belichick in the room. I'd like him to consult with the head coach, but I'm not ready at age 71 to hand the keys to Bill Belichick and just be like, do with do as you wish. There you go. Have at it. Coming up, our big splash. We've got a good one today. Plus, uh, later in the show, we'll be visiting with uh, former 49er Lawrence Pillars. He's in Vegas celebrating the Super Bowl. Multi-time Super Bowl champion Lawrence Pillars will be with us in the 5 o'clock hour. Starting to see Super Bowl commercials, Steven. Are you big on the commercials? Yeah, Are you a commercial I, guy? Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I pay attention to them, but I don't, I'm not ranking them. Usually none really stand out to me. Like if I'm being honest, yeah. like I'm watching them, but it's not like at the end of the Super Bowl, I'm like, oh, that was by far a great Super Bowl for commercials. <laughs> Like I just love. Yeah, I, I like when you're watching the game and you're in the room and you have some Super Bowl commercial people in the room. How quiet it gets during during the commercials. Everyone, everyone, quiet. The commercials. Uh, I I just sent you a BMW commercial that they debuted on the Today Show today, and it's Christopher Walken in the uh, BMW co- uh, commercial for the Super Bowl, and he's like going to get a car, he's going to get a coffee at Starbucks. And people are imitating Walken while they're uh, while they're uh, basically trying to, uh, you know, like when they're talking to him. He's walking his dog. Uh, I'll send it to you. See if we can play it on air. But um, you know, Christopher Walken. He's got a uh, he's got a uh, you know very distinct delivery. You know, here's a comedian pulling off a Christopher Walken impression. Dancing in this country is not a sport, but if you dance in some of the rougher parts of China, it can be full combat. I danced in China in 1964 in the great dance-off of Beijing of 1964. It never gets reported because four people died in the great dance-off of 1964. I was competing against an amazing top dancer by the name of Ying Yang. And another guy who wasn't well-known, but he's a guy who's inspired hip-hop dancing. So walking in a Super Bowl commercial would be a thing to see. We'll play it. Uh, we'll play this BMW spot All right, after we do the big splash. Let's do the big splash. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. Well, if you're a Seahawks fan, you didn't get Jim Harbaugh. You don't have John Harbaugh. But you may have a Harbaugh after all. Seahawks expected to hire Jay Harbaugh as their special teams coordinator under head coach Mike McDonald, ESPN reporting that today. The 34-year-old Harbaugh has served in that role for the past five seasons at Michigan under his father, Jim, 
Ann Arbor News saying that the younger Harbaugh was set to follow his father to Los Angeles to coach on the Chargers staff, but instead he will reunite with McDonald in Seattle. Now, McDonald and Jay Harbaugh coached together for two seasons, first in Baltimore, then at Michigan, when McDonald was the uh, Wolverines' defensive coordinator. Um, So you get a Harbaugh, but you don't get Jim Harbaugh. Uh, but I think uh, it comes with some credibility. Obviously, you see coaches this time of year as they're filling in their staffs in the NFL, thinking about the future, this upcoming draft, the off season. They're going with people that are talented but also familiar, especially a new head coach like McDonald. doesn't have to worry about the trust element. You know, The familiarity of having somebody you've coached with before is a big and important thing. You see it all the time in sports. It's not just about hey, um, I'm in a new position, let me go out and find the best special teams coach I can find. No, let me find somebody that I can trust and work well with, and then we'll worry about the rest of the stuff. Because so much of what McDonald will do with the Seahawks now is new and different, moving from Baltimore to Seattle. College coaches will tell you it's a head-spinning experience, and coaches who um, don't do well, head coaches who don't do well, will often point to their staff and say, hey, it didn't come together right, I had the wrong mix, it's my fault, I hired the wrong guys. Uh, Some of that can be alleviated when you make a hire that is familiar to you, and that appears to be what Mike McDonald, the new coach of the Seattle Seahawks, is doing with Jay Harbaugh, son of Jim, headed to Seattle. There you go. All right, you've got the Christopher Walken bit. This is the BMW commercial. He goes into, basically, um, he goes into the car dealership, and the uh, tag on the on the ad is basically there's only one Chris Walken, but he you know it starts with him going into the car dealership where he uh, is talking to the guy about the car, and then the guy uh, sort of reiterates it back to him. Then he's getting a coffee, and then uh, he ends up with Usher. Usher does some kind of imitation of Christopher Walken. Tell me if this works for you as from a sound standpoint, and good on BMW for releasing it early to get mass maximum impact. Nice ride. It's the real deal. 100%. Electric. It's the real deal. Yeah. Thank you. Of course. Enjoy your coffee. Careful, it's hot. Thanks. Your dog's so cute. Mm, yeah. Ooh, so adorable. Yeah, wow. Yeah, right. We both know it's the man who makes the clothes. Oh, you know, you look nice. Okay. We done? Hello, Mr. Walken. Does this table work for you? Yeah. Yeah. Did someone say yeah? That's Usher. Don't you got somewhere to be? Yeah. (laughs) Oh. There's only one Christopher Walken and only one ultimate driving machine. The rest are just imitations. All right, does it work, Stephen? Does the spot work? Yeah, I think because, uh, uh, th- like you said, there's a lot of people that have a Christopher Walken impression. So I think the fact that you know he's a very recognizable face and very recognizable voice, I, I think it plays. I think it plays well. We did a uh, mix one time of Christopher Walken, and he has this bit about the tooth fairy coming in and stealing your tooth and replacing it with a quarter. And we did it with Neil Olshay, kind of blended it together. The Blazers GM, how we felt over and over in the off season that 
Neil O'Shea was like the tooth fairy stealing your tooth. Uh, here's that bit. I think we're going to be competitive. No, we've got we've got a two-time All-Star point guard. We've got a big-time two-guard. We've got a guy from Team USA who's 25 years old who's been a starter, you know, on a playoff team. You know, we've got so has Al Farouk Aminu. So like, I mean, we have guys. These guys are better than you guys think. They're just younger. I feel like a little boy who's lost his first tooth, put it under his pillow, waiting for the tooth fairy to come. Only two evil burglars have crept in my window and snatched it before she could get here. Ironically, I actually think there's more talent here today than what we inherited when we got here three years ago. Wait a second. Do you understand the concept of the tooth fairy? I think it's, it's younger guys, right, that, are, that their best days are ahead of them, that in terms of how they're all going to fit together, we'll see how quick that takes place. She takes a thing, gives you a quarter. Try to look at us, if you can, for what we are and what we have, not what we aren't and what we don't have. Do you understand? She takes a thing, gives you a quarter. I want it back. <laughs> Neil O'Shea as the tooth fairy. There you have it. All right, we got a lot to talk about in the 4 o'clock hour. We'll kick around the Super Bowl. We'll get a visit in the 5 o'clock hour from former Super Bowl champion Lawrence Pillars, who's in Vegas on the scene. He says he's going to have a beer in his hand and want to tell stories. I'm here for that. And I will have the 5 at 5 as well. you got the bald-faced truth statewide right here on the BFT Radio Network. I appreciate those of you who joined the show in Hour 1. I always like to say each of the hours is a little bit different. Like Hour 1, it is a little more newsy, I think, up-to-date. Hour 2 is often opinionated. And hour three is the happy hour. So, you know, I, I like to think of it like, you know, it flows together. But um, I got a lot to say about what we saw over the weekend, including Washington-Washington State basketball game, the Cougars dominating the Huskies, and a little shade thrown by Washington State in the process. There's some stuff going on in college athletics. I know the Super Bowl is going to dominate the news cycle this week. I know that uh, we're going to be doing a lot of talking and interviewing and talking about Vegas and the Super Bowl and the college football. Got the Big Ten and the SEC forming this uh, this partnership, so to speak, where they're going to sort of talk about what needs to happen in major college athletics. Athletic directors, university presidents, conference commissioners. Feels to me like college athletics is trying to figure out how it separates how does the football entity major football entities and football separate from the ncaa how does the sec and big 10 lead the way there and i'm here to tell you i wrote this today in my monday mailbag at johnconzano.com and if you're not getting the mailbag you're missing out go to johnconzano.com and get it because the mailbag i think Sometimes I get challenged. Sometimes I get asked questions that lead me in a different direction. And somebody asked me that today, like, what, what is going to happen? And I pointed out that in last August, when Oregon and Washington said they were going to leave the Pac-12, I had a source at the University of Oregon who told me in no uncertain terms that the decision that was being made was a decision that was rooted in like a 20-year view of what was going to happen to college athletics. And I'll read you the exact quote that I put in the mailbag today. Quote, we've got to get this right 
it's not looking at a two-year window or a five-year window. You're looking at a 20-year window, end quote. That was a day before Oregon defected to the Big Ten. Okay, so I had an inkling that Oregon was in deep thought about what it needed to do. But they're looking at a 20-year window. Why? Because they're looking at the upper division of schools in football. Right now, 34 teams in the Big Ten and the SEC. Potentially expanding to 48 or 64 and then going, hey, this group can afford to pay players. This group can afford to invest heavily. This group is different than the rest of college athletics. Essentially, it's you know what Power 5 used to be, but they'd all be in one entity. And then all the other sports go back to traditional regional conferences or form new conferences that make geographic sense. So I think that's what the SEC and the Big Ten are plotting. And all of that is, I think, going to happen here in the next three to five years. And I think the Big Ten and the SEC are figuring out, like, how do we split from the NCAA or do you need the NCAA? Or frankly, do you need anything else but each other? Or do they just kind of split away and go, hey, uh, we'll also take Florida State, Miami. We'll take, um, you know, uh, if you want to pay your players, raise your hand. If you want to, uh, if you can afford to spend $30 million a year on football, raise your hand. I mean, on salaries, raise your hand. And, and you can potentially come with us. Now, at that point, Oregon State, Washington State would have a decision to make. Either you're going to invest or you're not. And I think it's why they will slow play this decision to whether to expand the Pac-12 into something or kind of just kind of linger here for a little bit. You know, I think that's the ultimate play if you're Oregon State and Washington State. Um, I've teased before the hour, at the end of last hour, that, you know, Washington and Oregon, Washington State played a basketball game on Saturday night. Washington State has now won seven of the last nine games between those two schools. Kyle Smith owns the Huskies. Washington State won again, this time in overtime. And after the game, Washington State tweeted out the result. And in the tweet, they tagged the Big Ten Conference. <laughs> little bit of little bit of salt in the wound from the Cougars to the Huskies. Huskies fans are not happy. Mike Hopkins probably not going to keep his job beyond this season. Would bet against that. And they've got to make a change. Would they consider... Poaching Washington State's coach? I mean, it crossed my mind. It would be dirty. But I I thought about it. i got to be honest with you. The guy's a really good coach. Kyle Smith's a really good coach. I would be surprised if he stayed at Washington State beyond this season just because I think he's going to get offers. It's the reality of today's college landscape. Now, the reality of the professional landscape and college landscape when it comes to fans is also a little sobering. And I hit on this over the weekend on a piece that I wrote about Dan Lanning, University of Oregon football coach, who is a diehard Kansas City Chiefs fan. Lanning has come on the show and he's talked about the Chiefs. The first and only game he went to as a kid was at Arrowhead Stadium. He was 10 years old. He's talked about the uh, hot chocolate that he drank at the game, pulling into the uh, parking lot at Arrowhead with his dad and his dad's F-150 pickup truck and Dan Lanning's brother, Jordan, along for the ride as well. And uh, Derek Thomas getting a sack in the game and the Chiefs winning. And uh, I went and looked up some facts about the game. It was like 22 degrees at kickoff. Like, it's just 
wind chill was 22. I mean, it was a, a cold day, but it was the most glorious football game that young Daniel Lanning ever saw played, right? And and I think it was pretty interesting. I was thinking about him because the Super Bowl is coming up and his Chiefs are in it, and I was kind of wondering would he would he go to Vegas for the game? And it turns out, no, he's not going to Vegas for the game, but his dad, Don, and his mother, Janice, are traveling from Missouri to Eugene, Oregon, where they were watch the football game with uh, their son at his house. So they're going to be visiting this week, and I am told uh, by Dan Lanning's father that they will be uh, hanging out and you know, holding their own viewing party at Dan's house. So they're going to enjoy that. But it got me thinking, the whole Dan Lanning experience got me thinking, because, you know, when I was a kid, about the same age, we didn't have season tickets either. My parents weren't springing for season tickets to the 49ers or the Raiders in the Bay Area. I went to one NFL game as a kid as well. And we sat in the upper deck, and uh, there were tickets that my dad's friend, longtime childhood friend, had. He had four season tickets, and the guy said, hey, do you want to come to the game? And he brought my dad. He brought me. I remember uh, riding up to the game, being excited to be at a Candlestick Park and see what I had seen on television and heard on the radio and seeing it in person. And we sat in the upper deck in the end zone. They weren't particularly good seats, but I was jacked to be inside the stadium for that first experience. It was, you know, it was cool to be at Candlestick Park and enjoy that experience. And I got to see it one time. One time, one time only, it was my first impression, my only impression as a kid, I loved it. Now, years later, I would cover the NFL for the San Jose Mercury News, and I, would, I remember going to Candlestick all the time and pulling into the parking lot and walking past everybody's tailgate and going, these, are people, these people are so lucky, they don't realize how lucky they are. I was here once as a kid, and you know, of course I'd cover the game, and I would leave when it was dark and the parking lot was empty, and it always struck me how desolate how isolated how deserted how dark the parking lot was but it got me thinking about you and your first experience as an nfl fan or a college fan or an nba fan because i want to hear about your experiences the first time you ever saw a game first time you went into the parking lot how old were you did you go more than once did you get to go to a seahawks game did you go to a, a, you know, was it another city, another NFL game? Was it, a, you know, was it a college experience? Was it an NBA experience? What it, what was it, you know? you know? Dan Lanning said it was heaven to see the Kansas City Chiefs play the Packers as a kid in 1996, okay? And I thought it was heaven to see the 49ers play the New Orleans Saints, you know, a decade plus earlier from Dan Lanning. And... You know, for those of you who are looking at the Super Bowl, you're talking about hotel rates in Vegas that are commanding more than $1,000 a night. You're talking about ticket prices to Allegiant Stadium that climbed above 7000 per seat last week. They've since settled down. You can get in right now for about 4500 on StubHub. That gets you a seat at the top of the upper deck in the quarter of the end zone. But the the bottom line is we're a long way from Dan Lanning's childhood. We're a long way longer way from my childhood. And, you know, I am thinking now about families. And, you know, there's been a shift in stadiums. You're getting airline pricing, dynamic pricing based on demand. 
You're getting a lot of college and pro teams that are removing regular seats from their stadium, and they're putting in premium and club seating because they can charge more for it. The average ticket to an NFL game this season rose to an all-time high. was $120 for an average ticket to a regular NFL game this season. It'll go up again next season. Uh, the team marketing report, this is a research firm that gives you kind of, they do research on what is it the cost of a family of four to go to a game. The team marketing report says it costs your family $631 to go to a game, family of four. That includes food, parking, a uh, souvenir, and your seats. And I can remember my dad, my dad had us make hot dogs at home before we went to Candlestick. We wrapped them in aluminum foil and smuggled them into the stadium. Dad sprung for a frozen chocolate malt at the concession stand. It was five bucks. I ate it with a wooden spoon. It was the best malt I ever had. I'm I'm looking right now. Where can I get a carnation chocolate malt for Sunday's game? I'll serve them at my house, wooden spoons and all. But like it was better because Joe Montana was on the field and I was eating eating a malt. Right? It was a big deal. But I kind of worry that college athletics and pro athletics is pricing families out of games. I don't know who's affording to go to games all the time. And is it just going to be like if you have corporate seats or you know, you're fortunate enough to be affluent enough to afford season tickets, good on you. But I'm just kind of wondering what happens to families anymore when it comes to NFL and college games. Because the prices tell me that rank-and-file fans are being priced out. So I want to hear, I want to talk to you about those two subjects. One, tell me about your first game. Tell me about the magic. Like, I remember the chocolate malt. I hadn't thought about that chocolate malt since probably, like, 1984. You know, like, I, you know, it, had, it had been erased from my mind, and suddenly I was thinking about being at the stadium, and I remember Dad going, hey, you know, you can get a chocolate malt, five bucks. Was a lot of money at that time and so what do you remember from your first game that you ever saw and was there more than one for me it was one nfl game that's all i got and you know i'm thinking about my kids right now like they haven't seen an nfl game i'll probably wait till they're old enough to remember it you know like it's gonna be pricey so you might as well you tell me about your first game 503-417-7575 i want to hear it it was magic. The comment section, if I, as I wrote about Dan Lanning on, on uh, Saturday, the comment section was just crazy with people sort of sharing their own experiences and sharing their own times going to a stadium, ranging from Kesar Stadium to other places. I want to hear from you because I want that experience. And then secondarily, are you at all worried that sports is pricing families out? And if that happens, and the only experience that people can have is largely on television, how does that change sports? How does that change stadiums? How does that change fans? I know that one experience I got, it was special to me. And we sat in the nosebleeds, in the end zone, and I was grateful for it. 503-417-7575. Let's go to the phone lines. Shane is in Portland. Shane, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. So mine, like yours, is a candlestick. I believe it was my 10th birthday. It was Padres versus Giants. Basically, both teams were stacked. 
Uh, you had, you know, Mason attendance. You had Bonds. You had uh, McGriff on the other side. Uh, my mom took me. Uh, we arrived at the airport. We took a taxi, and they dropped us off the wrong spot. We were approached by police officers that uh, told my mom to get into the car. Uh, they gave us an escort to Candlestick. We got there. They had lost our tickets. So we basically got the box seat tickets on top of the dugouts. So I nice. guess they were their owner's tickets. Uh, we had a ball player who signed a ball and handed it to us. Uh, I, I can still remember the game like it was yesterday. And uh, we got a uh, police escort back to the airport. So it was Pretty a nice. day trip. Pretty damn nice getting a police escort in and out of the stadium, especially that was a tough drive in and out of Candlestick. I, Dan Lanning said it. He said, he, he said, I can't tell you what I had for breakfast yesterday, but I could tell you everything about that day in 1986. He remembered eating gummy worms at the stadium. He remembered having a hot chocolate. He remembered wandering down to the stands where they saw Marcus Allen walk by and he and his brother Jordan, had their, their jaws dropped. He remembers his dad's stick sift truck. I remember um, the jacket I wore. And I remember having the hot dogs we made at home in my pocket. I remember, uh, you know, just being like taking in the stadium and realizing like everything that I had imagined or seen on television was right in front of me. It was surreal. Sam's in Vancouver. The number is 503-417-7575. Sam, go ahead. Hey, yeah. So I've got a couple. My dad raised me on sports. Um, so I just remember that exact carnation chocolate malt at the Portland Beaver Games at Civic Stadium. Yes. Um, my dad used to drive me up to Seattle to the Kingdome whenever the A's would come up there because I couldn't go see my favorite team, the Giants, so the A's was the next thing. And I was seeing Walt Weiss, Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire, all those guys, and Griffey Jr. Um, but the one thing that really sticks out is I was going to Ducks games before the pick, but my dad took me, just happened to take me to the pick game. And uh, I was in the corner end zone about 17 rows up when he did that. My dad was listening to Jerry on the headphones, and he was in the aisle crying, not even seeing the end of the play because we finally yes. beat the Huskies. Yeah. At the end of the game, we're walking up towards the top, and my dad turns around, and, of course, the crowd had just rushed the field. And my dad, he says, take a look at that field because you're always going to remember this scene right here. And I have ever since then. Um, one of my greatest memories. Um, I have seen the 49ers once up in Seattle, and that was the one and only time because the way that we were treated was, uh, it was really beyond belief. I, I understand yeah. the harassment, but what I could tell you about how we were treated, it would probably make you sick. So yeah. I just that, wanted to share my ruins it. Mike. Yeah, They did. They really did. I haven't been up there since, and it's so sad because my favorite team goes up to Seattle three hours away every year, and I, and I won't go see them because of that treatment I got. Yeah, it's rough. And I hate that NFL stadiums have gone from, like, sports stadiums in general. You look back at, like, how fans dressed 50 years ago at a sporting event versus now they're punching each other in the face. It, I, you know, it's really disappointing. I wish the NFL would do more, particularly the NFL, would do more to make the stadium experience uh, a little more enjoyable for everybody. Because I, I, I do cringe about, like, taking my kids to a game. Like, you know, I'm a 49ers fan. My kids, by virtue of that, are required to be 49ers fans. They don't have a choice. They may have attempted to root for the Cowboys at one point or the Rams, and I go, no. They go, we like, we like the star in the helmet. Nope. Sorry. You're a Niner fan. Guess what? Niners play at Seattle. I'm not taking my 7-year-old and 9-year-old to, to go see a game there. 
because I don't want him to see Dad fight. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, you know it's not a great scene. Jeff is in Washougal. Jeff, give us a happy memory. John, check this out. My first NFL game. My buddy gets three tickets to the Beast Quake game, 2010 Seahawks season. We're 7-9. and nine. We go as, almost as a goof. Let's go watch the Seahawks get trashed by the Saints, right? The defending champ Saints. Well, it turned out to be the Beast Quake game, and needless to say, it was ridiculous. It was awesome. Free yeah. tickets. That's great. Lower yeah, great. level. In the you corner never... of the end zone, right where Lynch goes over backwards, and you know what he did as he grabbed and he yep. went over backwards with the TD. Yeah, it yep. was killer. Yeah, and you never forget it. You know, I don't care if you're a kid or a grown-up when you have that first experience. You don't forget it. And I know from a baseball standpoint, I remember walking into Candlestick Park, and for those of you who have been there, it was you know it was a typical ballpark of that era. It was a lot of concrete. And you're walking around, and you're kind of winding your way up the stadium, and you don't really get to see the field until you come through the tunnels because the walkways are all on the outside of the stadium. And you walk through the tunnel, and the green grass, after the contrast of seeing concrete for 15 minutes as you're walking up to your seat, the green grass, it just it's, it's, uh, it's so green, it's surreal. Jim is in Eugene, listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Jim, welcome. Hey, thanks, John. John, I'll never forget my first NFL game. I was 12 years old. I'm thinking it was 1978, uh, Oakland, Alameda County Coliseum. The Raiders hosted the Atlanta Falcons. And, uh, of course, the Raiders had Kenny Stabler and throwing the ball around, uh, Dave Casper as their tight end, and Mark Van Egan, their running back. And the uh, Falcons had, at the time, Steve Barkowski. You remember him? Yep. Cal guy. And Yep. Oh, man, he could sling it. And I remember the Raiders, we had we were good seats, about the 35-yard line behind the Raiders bench, maybe 20, 25 rows up. And uh, the Raiders taking a large early lead and then resting their starters. And the Falcons came back a little bit. The Raiders won, but um, just awesome experience, just my dad and I. Um, and, you know, one thing that really stuck out to me is I realized how the quarterbacks are throwing the ball to a spot before the receiver even makes a break. And and uh, Stabler and Dave Casper hooked up a couple of times, and he threw the ball before Casper even turned around. And uh, just just a great experience, lots of you fun. You can really see it when you can see the whole field, too. By the way, that was 1979, that game. It was October the 14th, 1979. Do you remember the score? Uh, I want to say the Raiders scored 50 in the yep. 50s. They, Raiders had 50. 52? 50 okay. to 19. 50 to 19 was the final. Raiders put a 50 burger up on the Falcons and that's uh, that's an unusual uh, thing to do in the NFL but big big offensive game. Yeah, just a, just a great time and then a, I think a year later we saw the Raiders host the Niners uh for a preseason game. Yeah. Following year, yep. The Raiders were not bad at that time as well, 79, 80, of course the Super Bowl. Megan is in Gresham. Megan, welcome to the conversation. Uh, thanks. Yeah, I've been to two NFL games. My first one, I grew up in North Carolina and actually got to see the inaugural season of the Panthers at Bank of America Stadium. Wow. Which, when I was in middle school, it was pretty awesome. Uh, I definitely still remember that. I went with my, my friend's parents, had an extra ticket, and she invited me, and I felt very lucky, even though I was way more into watching the actual game than she was. 
What do you remember? Then, can, I, can I ask you first oh, before yeah, we move I, on? What do you remember about the fans, the Panthers fans? Because it was all the NFL was all new, and you know oh, yeah. it was as I recall that stadium's a big stadium. It's like seventy five thousand. That's a big big venue. It was a big stadium, and they had the giant Panthers um, st- uh, statues at the entry gates, and everyone was just so excited. It was just a sea of black and blue and silver. Basically, it was pretty awesome. cool to see. What was your other game? My other game was actually, I called it the Battle of the Backups. It was in Candlestick Park, and it was Chicago versus Niners when Kaepernick got his first start after Alex Smith went down. Wow. And the backup at the time for the Chicago Bears was playing as well. Good memories. Candlestick, love that. Well, I want more of your phone calls. Jim, Zach, you hang on. I want your stories. I got lines open. 503-417-7575. You got the BFT. I want your phone calls. I want your stadium experiences, your first stadium experience or otherwise. Anna's popped into the studio. She's got a stadium experience that she will share. Uh, Anna, we're going to go to the phone lines first, though. People are itching to talk about their experiences. Why do you think people want to talk about it? Like, I wrote the column over the weekend. Immediately in the comment section, everybody kind of wants to share their experience, and I love it. These are core memories. I mean, these are, you know, for most of us, like, going to a stadium especially nowadays is really a treat you know you have to save up for it these are not um cheap experiences anymore so if they've been more recent memories then they're special for that way but also i mean i think people usually share these experiences with loved ones friends or family members and um you know unless you're like a season ticket holder and going is just a regular experience for you i think for the majority of us, these are these are unique things to to live through in life. Our uh, our uh, sister station KXL has got a uh, newsman named Jim Ferretti who used to work on this show. By the way, yeah, so big he was big time on this show. Yes, and then then he moved on. It's like he got traded to the Yankees. <laughs> yeah. He has called in. He's got an NFL story. Ferretti, what's up, man? You guys, uh, my first NFL experience, of course, was up at uh, in Seattle at the Kingdom. Three rows from the top of the kingdom, decked out to little 12-year-old Jim Ferretti in Seahawks garb from head to toe. I don't remember who we were playing, but uh, that you said it. It's core memories. It sticks in your head, and you don't forget except for who they were playing. But, you know, I remember walking all the way to the top of the kingdom to watch his <laughs> little ants play below me. You were on the moon. Yeah. Now, wait a minute. i got to tell you a second story because I don't think yeah. I've ever told you this. Yeah. 1987, Monday Night Football, the Raiders versus Seahawks. You remember this game? Is that the uh, Bo Jackson game? That is, yes, the Bo Jackson game running wow. through the tunnel. I did not go to that game. I was at Grandma's house watching that game. I was at Grandma's house because my mom and dad, my aunts and uncles, and everyone else went to that game. Oh. They were sitting right above the tunnel. So oh, every no. time that play gets played, I get to see all my family <laughs> at this game. <laughs> You, you can barely see it anymore because uh, because the uh, the the uh, look of the TV is so bad. Yeah. <laughs> but I can pick them out. Oh, there's there's dad. There's mom. You no. know you know better than anybody. You're not watching Bo Jackson run up the tunnel. <laughs> <You're> watching... <laughs> Little Jimmy Ferretti could have Le- been there. Left out. Oh man. Left out. No, it's not the first time. It won't be the last. Hey, 
Jim, let me ask you this. Uh, we had a caller, yeah. and I've heard this over and over. The Seahawks fans are pretty bad when it comes to opposing team fans. What is that about? All right, so, yeah, another story. Uh, back when we used to cover the Seahawks, uh, I took my father-in-law to a game, and we, had, we were able to get tickets way up in the, up in the bleachers, way up there at uh, the new stadium. And when we were walking up to our seats, they were, and we sat down in our seats, they were booing this 10-year-old kid who has, uh, had a Cardinals shirt on. Booed him the whole way up. Yeah, Seahawks fans are bad. Yes, we are. We're bad. We're bad people. Bad we're bad. Oh man, Jim Ferretti, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Love there he is. I love. Um, I covered the Raiders for a season. The Raider fans are bad in a different way. Like, there's kind of a that when they were in Oakland, there was just kind of a constant whiff of marijuana in the air, like around the stadium. <laughs> and then you know, one game there was I was watching. I was in the press box. Because I was covering the Raiders right around 2000-ish and before, maybe the four or five years before that. But there was, I was watching from the press box, and each section in the stadium would suddenly erupt and rise to their feet, like in the upper deck. Like one section would do it, but it wasn't like the wave. It wasn't continuous. Hmm. One section would stand up and roar, and then like 15 or 20 seconds later, the next section would stand up and roar. So I got my binoculars out. I'm in the press box. And I look, and there was a woman in her 20s who was walking section to section, and she would stand, stop in front of the section, turn towards the fans, and flash, <laughs> raise her shirt, and flash, and the, st- the section would just go bananas. And then she would pull it back down and walk to the next section. And she did this all around the stadium. Nobody stopped her. No security. Yeah. Security was like, hey, we got bigger problems. Right. You know? Yeah. And I was just like, only in Oakland. Big part of the fan experience. Only in Oakland. It's like the slowest wave, but a memorable wave. Let's go to Zachary, who's in Portland, who has memories for us. Zachary, go ahead. Uh, I have a couple, couple of quick stories. One was reminded to me because of the Detroit Lions I was at Kezar Stadium in 1957 when the 49ers had a 27-7 lead Yes, and managed, after sitting on hard concrete benches for several hours, Detroit won 34-31. Came back and won. And uh, so I'm glad we managed to beat them this time. And yeah, my other payback. quick story is I went to the first uh, – my first college game was at University of California when Joe Cap was the quarterback, and they played College of Pacific with the great running back Dick Bass. They managed to lose that game, and they lost the next game to uh, Michigan State, but they went on to play in the Rose Bowl in 1958. Yeah. Oh, after were, the 58 season. Yeah, they were good. So. They were Joe Cap, man, one of a kind. One of a kind. Um, you know, and I thought it was interesting. He I think he passed away last spring. But um he's he's in the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. He's in the College Football Hall of Fame. He uh one tough guy. He was the only player in history. Here's a trivia question for your Super Bowl party. He's the only player to play quarterback in a Super Bowl, a Rose Bowl, and a gray cup. Joe Cap was a winner. 
Mike in Vancouver has a story. Mike, go ahead. Hey, good afternoon, John and Anna. Hey, I uh, just listening to all these guys. It, it's you guys are spot on about the core memories. I'll never forget December of 1982 against New England in the Kingdom. My dad took me to my first game. I was five years old, um, and I have thankfully been able to continue that on with my boys. I have lucky enough. I'm a season ticket holder for the Seahawks, and I've been going in going to away games for the last 15 plus years. Um, recently got to take both my boys and my wife. We went to the Arizona game, Pete Carroll's last game. Um, but I've, I've been all over, been to Cleveland, to San Fran, to Arizona, to Nashville, actually went to the New York game, uh, against the giants this year. And my son and I were both on Monday night football. It was fantastic. So awesome. it is an experience. It's something that we choose to do instead of things we, we, we take them for experiences and sports is the one thing that we share. Um, and can always share with each other. So, do you have a favorite stadium that you've visited? Oh, Cleveland was fantastic. Uh, sat in the dog pound in Cleveland. That was an experience. Mm-hmm. Um, MetLife was an experience just because of the proximity to the city, um, and being on Monday Night Football didn't suck, but. Mm-hmm. Um, Seattle is fantastic, and I, I know I'm biased. Um, the one I can tell you that I in, have enjoyed the least, and I've been there multiple times, um, is Arizona. Uh, just a dark, dank place. But uh, probably the worst place besides the favorite that I ever went to was the old Edward Jones Dome in St. Louis. That Talk about just a miserable, yeah. miserable experience. But, I've been there. Yeah. No, Cleveland was great. Same with, uh, same with New York. Did you remember anything about that game in 1982? that you went to. I'm looking at the uh, box score. It kicked off at 4 o'clock on Sunday, December 19th, 1982. You're in the stadium. Do you remember anything? The only thing I remember is uh, kind of what Freddie said. Uh, we had My dad had seats in the 300 level. If you remember anything about the Kingdom, the open end of the stadium where the scoreboard yeah. was at, there was a section that was it cut off there. It was right behind the goalpost. And I remember walking out of the tunnel and walking up the stairs, and the first time I turned around, I, fa- I thought I was going to fall down. Um, <laughs> it was so steep. Yeah. I was five years old. They were so small, and it seemed like we were so high up. But um, <laughs> could I tell you the score of the game without looking it up? No. Uh, but uh, I'll always remember that my dad took me to that game. So I love that. That's what's important. I love that. Mike in Vancouver. That's good stuff. Um, I don't want to tell him what happened in the game. I don't want to ruin it. <laughs> you know, I'm looking at the box score. You know he's gonna go look it up. Okay, now. all right. Seahawks had six turnovers. Oh. And they lost. They got shut out. You know what? And that's that's the beauty of this. He doesn't even. He doesn't that. care. It didn't matter. Oh. They lost sixteen nothing wow. to the Patriots. It, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because it wasn't about that. It was about that core experience and his dad yeah. and being there and dad going, "Come on, son, let's go to the game." And I worry that. With the price of tickets and college tickets and mm-hmm. families are getting priced out. I, I kind of do worry that we're not going to have stories like this in all corners of our uh, culture anymore. Uh, Carrie is in Eugene, listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Carrie, go ahead. Yeah, I don't think I ever told you guys this. Um, this was uh, uh, up in Seattle, and it was uh, Lumenfield, whatever it was called back then. 
2004, maybe. Six, Quest, something like Carolina, that. Yeah. Carolina okay. Panthers. Okay. And uh, so I don't know exactly what date, obviously, but I know when it, what weekend it was was Halloween, the Sunday after Halloween, and okay. the Ducks had just kicked the Huskies' ass the day before. And yeah. we're watching the Seahawks play with me and my buddy from across the street. We're up there watching them. Uh, we're wearing our duck caps or you know, you've got a shirt on or something. And we're well, 14 to 6 or 14 to 9 in the fourth quarter, whatever. We're, we're hauling out, just kind of trucking out of there. We're, oh, that's enough. We're going to go on, meet the girls and whatever. And <laughs> did a little switch back to get out of the seats. Just when we ducked into the tunnel to get out of the uh, seating area, I, I turned back and I said, go ducks, and just started getting pelted with everything. <laughs> And there was this grandpa and this kid coming up the stairs, right? Coming up as we were going down, wearing their duck stuff. Oh, no. And so I'm like, yeah. oh, what you're walking into. <laughs> yeah. Seahawks won that game 23-17 against the Panthers. It was 2004. Yeah. It was uh, talking about um, – it was Halloween 2004. So it was the day after uh, Oregon had played Washington. I want more of your calls. Anna's going to share hers. Coming up next as well. She's been to one NFL game as a fan. Uh, I want your phone calls. 503-417-7575. Anna has been to one NFL regular season game. And you also had the good fortune of going to a Super Bowl. So that's kind of like a, that's a strange, those are strange bookends. (laughs) But I was covering the Super Bowl and you weren't going to go to the game and uh, a friend of ours who happens to have a job with uh, one of the corporate entities that had sponsorship of the game was like, hey, I suddenly have two tickets. I remember this. Like, he suddenly had two tickets to the Super Bowl, and we were already there. Now, I'm not going to go with a ticket, but I told my brother, who's a school teacher in California, hey, if you can get to Tampa by kickoff, I got a ticket for you. So you got to go to the game, and we paid face value on the mm-hmm. ticket. We didn't have to pay, like an arm and a leg because this person was not trying to gouge anybody. He just was like, hey, I got a corporate ticket. You can have it at face value. Now, I don't remember where you sat at the game for the Super Bowl. Do you want to talk about the Super Bowl or you want to talk about the first game you ever went to? Well, all I remember is that I was meeting your brother for the first time, so it was really strange. It was like, <laughs> oh, hi, so nice Bowl. to meet you. We're going to sit next to each other at the Super Bowl. Yeah. This is weird. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, and he caught a flight. He caught like a red yeah. eye. He sure made did. it right away. He, he said he went to his wife and he said, my brother has a ticket for me to the Super Bowl. And she was like, go. Oh, that's nice. That's a good wife. Yep. That was nice of her. All right. So that first game, you had never been to a game. You worked weekends. Uh-huh. So I was like, we can't just pop up to Seattle. Yeah. So I started looking at the Monday night football schedule. This was 2008. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And the Niners were playing the Arizona Cardinals in Glendale on a Monday night mm-hmm. at that toaster stadium. And it looks like a toaster from the outside to me. But <laughs> in, uh, we ended up flying in Monday and getting to the stadium right before kickoff. And what do you remember? Um, I remember the stadium feeling oddly intimate for the number of people that were in it. I expected it to be overwhelmingly loud and boisterous. And it was weird because it was like, oh, this is kind of like, it's kind of a cool experience. I, I wasn't expecting that. Um, I realized right away that I had a lot of questions about football at that point. Like, you know, uh, I think my caption from my post back then was something like, 
What's a two-point conversion? What qualifies as a false start? Why is the offsides? Oh, both sides are wearing a lot of red. I want another churro. Yeah. Like yeah, that's you basically did eat a churro. That's, that was the side commentary that you had to put up with for the yeah, whole Yeah, it was game. running dialogue. The Niners yeah. were not good. I remember they were like a 2-7 and seven team at the time. And the Cardinals were all right. They had Kurt Warner at quarterback. The Niners started Sean Hill at quarterback that night. They lost the game. The ball was on the two-yard line on the final play. And I remember Mike Singletary, the 49ers coach, went for the touchdown and ran the ball, and the Niners got stuffed. And the Cardinals won. And I also remember the crowd was very gentle. Yeah. It was a gentle opposing crowd. They didn't seem to mind that a couple of Niner fans were sitting amidst amongst them. Yeah, I wondered about that because it's like it was Phoenix, and Phoenix has so many, like, California transplants. So maybe it was yeah, maybe the opposition, so to speak, was a little muted. It know? was, and Arizona, you know, 49ers led at halftime, 21-13. The crowd was just docile. I remember yeah. it being kind of docile, and I was like, "Okay, this is not going to be a fight." You know, we're not gonna. I'm not gonna have to get in a fist fight uh, at this football game. But um, I think you're a little bit spoiled in seeing that your two games have been Monday Night Football <laughs> and a Super Bowl. Well, a hundred percent, kind of ridiculous. But it's kind of the fringe benefits of being with somebody who covers a lot of these kind of things, right? Kind of ridiculous. <laughs> ben is in Happy Valley. Ben, welcome. Thank you, John. Nice to uh, talk to you again. You guys are doing a great job, man. Thank you. Wow, uh, I'm, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you're a Niner fan because I'm a huge Niner fan, and I want to tell you a little bit about. Cause I've got a lot of these stories about going to the game from here, but there's one that's really cool. Is I went to Jerry's house. I met Jerry in person. I went to his office. I went to his weight room. I um, I got to see his hands that he has in his office made out of a made out of a ceramic. And uh, all his you're talking, you're talking about Jerry Rice. You're yeah, talking about Jerry, Jerry Rice? Rice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, how I got to go to his house is my sister works for uh, Stanford University at the hospital, and his wife was having a baby, and they had a uh, complication, so my sister ended up taking care of her. And Jerry asked her to come after hours and take care of the house, and that's how I got it to go wow. to Jerry's house. Good for and you. she called me, and then of course I went to the game that day uh, when I flew down there that weekend. We played Atlanta. And uh, I got really good seats. And in the tickets, I had some kind of a tag, like a yellow tag or an extra tag. So after the game's over, the security's kind of locked the, um, what do you call the aisles down, going to the field. But yeah. they open them up for the people that have this special tag. So we got to walk on the field. And then we went to the locker room. Of course, the locker room, locker room. I can't see part. And, uh, and uh, the first person I see is Steve Young. And I kid you not, he was like three feet away from me. But all he had was a bunch of Jennifer Aniston's around him, like six, seven girls, all in a circle. And he's in the middle talking to him. So I couldn't get to him. So I was like waving at him, trying to make eye contact, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, there's Steve Young. I'm just like in cloud night, right? So I'm holding my helmet that is signed by Joe Montana. It's a Rodeo helmet, authentic. And uh, my jerseys and all my footballs that I bought. <laughs> and uh, my sister's in somewhere with the other party. And so I go to the locker room. Here's Jerry at his black Porsche. says Flash 80 on it. Flash 80, and yeah. And he's sitting in it. Yeah, and he's sitting in it, and there's security around him. And I'm holding my helmet. I'm telling my brother, I said, I want to go. I want to go get it. Say hi to him, and I want to get my stuff signed, you know? And I don't want to go because there's security there. So I was like, what do I do? What do I do? And I said, where's my sister at, you know? And 
sure enough, here they come in the suburban. And she gets out with the family, here's Jerry's family, and and she goes, "Come on, let me introduce you to Jerry." So I went up there and I met him in person and shook his hand and and what a feeling, what a feeling, man, to, to meet somebody like him, you know? And, yeah. And I said I started getting my helmet to sign, and he goes, "Ah, bring it to the house," you know. So I had to leave Sunday night to get to work Monday. So my sister went Monday night. And he watches the Monday night football, I guess. So he signed all my stuff, and he made a comment about the helmet thing. Hey, I don't even have one of these where, you know, they have red stripes on the top. The so one side Joe, Joe Montana signed it, one side Jerry Rice signed it. I still nice. have that helmet. Love that. Thank you for sharing that story. Wow. He's excited about that. He got to see, got to go to Jerry's house. What a feeling. Yeah. <laughs> what a feeling. What a feeling. That's what I'm talking about, though. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about. Mike is in Salem. Mike, welcome. Well, you're talking about the cost of football, you know, college football particularly, and I've just related yeah. a story. When we first came over from Eastern Oregon in 1988, our kids were small, and we'd go to Bymart, and we'd get a two-for-one general admission ticket to the Beavers. We've always been a Beaver fan. And we'd, my youngest daughter and I'd go down and wait for them to open up a couple hours before the game. We'd go get four tickets. They were Fourteen dollars each. So in half, we paid fourteen dollars for four. Then when they opened up the gate, she'd take a blanket up and run up the ramp, that old the old side of the stadium, throw it down on the fifty yard line. And then we wait for my wife and other daughter to show up. We parked right there on the street, no parking fee, no cost, and we'd watch where you think get their teeth kicked in, which is what they did well in those years. And now today, I've been a Beaver ticket season ticket holder now for 25 years and all the rebuild we paid close to five thousand bucks for two tickets just to, we were on the 50 now we're on the 15 so yeah i don't know how a young family of any sort can manage those kind of costs and continue to go to sporting events it's just just ridiculous so it's what it is and times move on but we, we still talk about those days they're important my kids really love to talk about those days running up that ramp to get those seats. Yeah, I love that. Love that story, and I I agree with you. I look around the stadiums now on game day, and I and I always look down, I look down from the press box, and I go, who's here? And more and more often, I am seeing fewer kids and families, and I have wondered if it's, is it because youth sports has dominated our weekends and taken over? I think it's part of it. I think kids have a, have less time than they've ever had to get away on a weekend with their family. Is part of it that the cost of tickets has gone up and the press box where I'm sitting is generally between the 20s? Probably some of that, too. I think there's definitely some of that at play. Anna's got the 5 at 5 coming up here, top of the hour. Then we're going to get a visit from an unsung hero and a Super Bowl champion, Lawrence Pillars, defensive end with the 49ers. He played in the Super Bowl in 1982, won it with the 49ers with the Cincinnati Bengals. He's in Vegas, said he's going to have a beer in his hand and ready to tell stories. I want you to leave it here. Super excited about the interview coming up at 520. Former 49er defensive end Lawrence Pillars. The guy who caused the fumble in the NFC Championship game in 1982 Went on to win a Super Bowl that year with the 49ers. He's in Vegas. Reached him today. He was headed from his home in Mississippi down to Las Vegas. He won two Super Bowls with the 49ers. He's got a terrific story 
about going back to college, life after football. He ended up owning and operating a Subway sandwich store, a trucking company. He's got kids. He's obviously still connected with the Niners, and I tracked him down this morning after mentioning him in my Monday mailbag. I tracked down Lawrence Pillars, reached him on the phone, and I said to him, uh, is this Lawrence Pillars, the great 49ers defensive end? And he said, why, yes, it is. And I'm glad you described me that way. And we agreed. He was going to join us early in the show, and he said, well, I'd rather be somewhere where I can have a beer in my hand and just tell stories. I'm signing up for that. Lawrence Pillars, 520. Make an appointment. You got a Niner fan who remembers the 1980s 49ers teams. Tell him to get over here and listen to the show at 520. Anna's going to do the 5 at 5 in the meantime. And, uh, Anna, you're ready. I think you have six stories that you're going to fashion into five. Mm, no. No? No. You picked five. Yeah. I'm going to pare it down. Keep right. it simple. Let's do it. The five at five. Number one. Let's start with the Super Bowl, shall we? Uh, 49ers staffers are reportedly not pleased with the practice field at UNLV. Multiple sources are reporting this. That's where they have designated the 49ers to practice this week. And they're saying it's too soft. They're having issue with the firmness of the natural grass that the NFL has laid over UNLV's artificial turf. So they've got a few options. Uh, They're going to maybe negotiate with the NFL to practice at the Raiders practice facility where the Chiefs are located. That's what they should do. They should just do that. Well, they may also bring in new firmer sod that would be, you know, ready for practice, or they can just deal with it. I can't decide what's the bigger distraction. The Niners saying, look, this isn't a health and safety thing. This is just about preference and the field's too soft. Or did you see the story with Patrick Mahomes Sr.? Yeah. Third DUI. A week before the Super Bowl. I'm looking at Patrick Mahomes' family his ecosystem between his brother, his dad, and the wife, who's a little bit of a distraction. He's not getting a lot of help. He doesn't have a great supporting cast. Like, your your son's playing in the Super Bowl. Don't get a DWI in Texas. And it's his third. Apparently he had an open can of beer in the car before the arrest. And his brother, Jackson, has had an arrest. It's It's an embarrassment. The latest report I saw is that Dad's still going to the game, so he'll have all kinds of restrictions on him, but one of the consequences of the DWI is not a travel ban, so he'll still be able to go. Yeah, but here's the thing. Like, how do you get how do you get um, a third DUI? Yeah. You shouldn't have a license after two DUIs. You probably shouldn't have one after one DUI, but how do you get a third DUI? There's, there's a I, problem there. In this world of Uber and Lyft, like nobody should be getting a DUI. Patrick Mahomes Sr. pitched in the big leagues. Can get an Uber, but he decided not to. Uh, bad look doesn't help Patrick Mahomes Jr. Number two. 
I think it makes his rise to success even more remarkable. It's like in spite of his circumstances. All right, let's talk about Jay Harbaugh, the son of Jim Harbaugh. I guess he's not following dad from Michigan to the Chargers because guess what? He's coming up here to the Northwest. Uh, I find this very interesting because it's part of like this whole ecosystem of coaches and coaches sons that are working their way into like the next generation of coaching yeah you got jay and then you got belichick's kid yes who is also uh on the move and has a job steve belichick yeah steve belichick so dad's out of a job but he's set to become the new defensive coordinator at washington uh he spent the past 12 seasons with the patriots working on his father's coaching staff, so uh, yeah. he's probably learned a little something. We'll there. See how uh, Seahawks, or I mean, excuse me, Washington fans feel about that. You know, and I, I think it's going to be a rough transition to the Big Ten for Washington. You think? Yeah, I think seven or eight wins next season. I think it's. I just think that's how it lines up when you have a coaching change and you're going into a conference like that. But um, Steve Belichick, 36 years old. You know, is the safeties coach, was a defensive assistant with the uh, Patriots, now going to be apparently the uh, coordinator with the Huskies. And then you got um, you got Jay Harbaugh, J- Jim Harbaugh's son, saying, hey, I'm going to go coach with Mike McDonald and be the uh, Seahawks uh, special teams coordinator. You know, maybe Belichick and Harbaugh can be roommates. <laughs> They're both in Seattle. <laughs> it works. Be a sitcom. That's cute. There's a sitcom in there. Number three. Have you seen the interactive LED glass court that the NBA is debuting for this year's All-Star Weekend? I haven't. I don't know if I want to. It's pretty wild. So the court will display things that you typically see on a jumbotron. You'll see replays on it, real-time stats, interactive fan games right no. on the floor no. so if you are prone to uh epileptic seizures you may not want to watch all-star weekend because this thing i've seen it it's, and it's i'm looking at it it's it's really quite something it's cool it's mm-hmm. not for me though and they're not making it for me the whole all-star weekend is not for me you know i i had this realization once when i walked into a mall pacific sunwear used to be my store you really? know, when I was in my 20s, okay? <laughs> I go into PacSun, I was in my 20s, that was my store. I could get a baseball cap, I could get a pair of shorts, I could get a t-shirt. All of a sudden, one day, I walk into the mall, I go into Pacific Sunwear, and I'm like, this store's not for me anymore. <laughs> and then I walked around the whole mall, and I went, I don't have a store anywhere in the mall. They're not gearing any of this stuff for me. <laughs> I had the same experience with the NBA All-Star Weekend. Slam dunk competition, skills competition, this state-of-the-art full video LED court None of it's for me. It's not made for me. Steven, is it made for you? No, not for made for me. Uh, made for my kids, who was nine years old. So I, I think yeah. the All-Star Weekend, like, I'm with you. I think it'll be interesting to see what it looks like, but it's definitely not for me. It's uh, it's for the younger audience. It's for, you know, try to go viral, try to get that nice highlight. So I, I'm excited to see what it looks like, but uh, I don't have high hopes for it. I don't have a store in the mall either. Number four. This story cracks me up. So Apple Vision Pro. Yeah. <laughs> this is it? like this new, it's not a full virtual reality headset. It like mixes reality with virtual reality. Yes. Yeah, I have seen it. 
It looks like this wild, like, visor thing. It looks very heavy, but you can, I don't know. You can actually see through it when someone's wearing it. Yes. So you can see their eyes. Yes. You can see their facial reaction. Yes. So it's not like they're lost in space. Yeah. It's mixed yeah. reality. Yeah. Literally mixed reality. Um, the game between the Boston Celtics and the Memphis Grizzlies had a fan wearing one of these headsets. <laughs> courtside so he's less than 10 feet away from live nba action and he's wearing this augmented reality device and like making hand motions to change things on the device that you know we can't see he's the only one that can see them a lot of people were heckling him for this yeah i think apple's brilliant because i don't think this was an accident this is promotional for them. Uh, but I just don't, I mean, it's like live, being courtside at a live NBA game isn't enough. You have to, you have to add he's to checking that. his emails. You got to dazzle it up. He's checking his emails or he's, you know, he's watching a movie with a T-Rex in it. <laughs> I watched the demo for this thing. And by the way, Apple does a really good job of hiding the price until you're re- really serious about buying it. Like it buries the price when you look online this thing retails it starts at three thousand four hundred ninety nine dollars for the basic model yeah goes up to uh thirty nine hundred and the the nine-year-old and i watched the like the five-minute video about it it's pretty impressive you know like you're landing a butterfly on your finger if you as you hold your hand in front of you you're checking your emails you're watching a movie and uh so we went over to the apple store because she was like i'd love to do a demo they won't let her do a demo because she's not 12. Oh, right. So I said, uh, you know, not for me. We'll come back in three years when it's less than $3,500. <laughs> and you'll let a 12 in. let her do a demo. Oh, so you're but, saying the Apple Store did a better job of protecting your daughter's brain than yeah, you did? I was eager uh-huh. to put this device right on her head. Put it, put it right on there. Good job, man. Uh, but the other thing I'm seeing is I'm seeing videos now that are surfacing of people who are driving in self-driving cars. And they're... They're using the device or they're driving and using the device because they can still see out of it. And, uh, you know, I saw someone in a a video of somebody in a Tesla who was using it. And um, I don't know if this is planted or not. Oh, come on. I do think it's interesting. But at (laughs) $3,499 for the device, I'm not ready to make the leap. I kind of feel like this is like when remember when the VCR came out? Yeah. And it was like 1200 bucks mm-hmm. for a VCR. Mm-hmm. I'm going to wait for the prices to come down to <laughs> normal VCR prices. Right. Number 5. Okay, let's finish uh with something from the Grammys. Um Trevor Noah hosted the Grammys and he took kind of a funny spin on all the, you know, all the hoopla about Taylor Swift and all the shots of her at NFL games. So uh, they spun it around, and he said, well, you know, every time somebody mentions Taylor Swift, let's make sure that the cameras cut away to an an, an NFL player, in this place an ex-NFL player, Terry Crews, who happened to be in the audience. So it was just kind of a reverse way to talk about you know, the criticism of the overcoverage of Taylor Swift at Kansas City Chiefs game. I think Terry Crews had like 
You know, he played with the Rams, the Packers, the Chargers, Eagles. He didn't have like a. He was an eleventh round pick in the uh, in the NFL draft, but I think he's had a much bigger career as a uh, television host. Yeah, and he's actor the host of America's Got Talent. Than he has um, in the football. In football, he was cut repeatedly in the NFL. <laughs> um, here's the other thing: like, you know, I saw that video on TikTok and Instagram that's gone around about the girl. She's in a car and she's crying. She's upset. She's saying that Travis Kelsey's ruining the Grammys. <laughs> it's really clever. And she's mocking everybody who's making fun of Taylor Swift ruining the NFL. Yeah. But here's the balance. And here's where I think the NFL is missing. Okay, my friend Drew had a great idea. He should be working for CBS. <laughs> this is how good this idea is. You know how like Nickelodeon's doing the SpongeBob broadcast of the Super Bowl? Yeah, our kids want to watch kids that. Kids want to watch that. We might have to have a TV dedicated for them in another room because I'm not toggling back and forth. Yeah, we're not doing picture in picture. No. You don't want to watch Patrick, the Starfish, no. throw a touchdown? <laughs> no, but, but what, isn't CBS missing something here? Shouldn't they have a, a special stream that is like a split screen of the game and then a constant camera on Taylor Swift in the box? Like, that would win. <laughs> Can you imagine how many people would tune into that? Well, all the Swifties. And then you could actually say on the regular broadcast, we're going to limit Taylor shots to just one or two celebratory shots yeah. during the game. Right. If you want to see Swifty, you got to go to the Swift the Swift cast. The Swift cast. My what friend Drew. Have to agree with that though. No, because she's in the stadium, she's in a public place. The the camera's on her anyway. Yeah. They have camera seven on her anyway. They're only in the truck going to it when there's a celebration shot. So, I, no, they don't need your permission, Stephen. If you're in like section, you know, two twelve at Moda Center, they don't need your permission to put you on TV. I don't. I don't want that because I. I want to make the bet on the prop bets of how many times they show Taylor Swift on the broadcast. Mm. <laughs> That's ruining your uh, your plan. Yeah, it's yeah. ruining my money making ability. He's <laughs> got an ability, and look, I don't. You know, Anna, I told the story about the server in the pancake place who said she's, you know, who are you rooting for? She's a Taylor Swift's team. Okay. <laughs> she's a new viewer to football. She actually said that. She's coming to the game for that. Yeah. And that's, you know what? I am okay with that. When we, we watch the Super Bowl, there are going to be lots of people who watch the game for the commercials. going to be people who watch the game for the halftime show. The more the merrier, as long as you're not impeding on the football. So I don't want too much of the actual broadcast on CBS to be about her. Mm-hmm. It just it you know can be lightly sprinkled throughout. Well, that's why a simulcast you know, really would work. You know the Swift cast. Yeah, Swift half cast. Swift, mm-hmm. half game. Yeah. split screen. Mm-hmm. And it solves a problem for everybody. Yeah. All right, coming up next, one of the unsung heroes. From one of the 49ers championships, Lawrence Pillars. He's a defensive end. He's in Vegas, presumably to celebrate the Super Bowl. He'll be joining us coming up. I want you here for it. Well, I started today's show by talking about my childhood. I was a 49ers fan, diehard Niners fan, 10, 11 years old. 49ers were playing the Dallas Cowboys in the NFC Championship game. January of 1982. Everybody remembers the catch. Dwight Clark 
I ran out the uh, sliding doors into the backyard of my parents' house in the Bay Area and whooped it up and celebrated and came back in only to find the Dallas Cowboys and Danny White driving down the field. Uh, It was not a pleasant feeling. But our next guest played a big-time role in sealing that NFC Championship victory. 49ers go on to win the Super Bowl. The Dallas Cowboys, who had dominated, didn't dominate that game that season. And really, for the next decade, the Niners took control of the NFC. Lawrence Pillars was the guy. He forced the fumble. Jim Stuckey jumped on it. And this morning, I wrote about Lawrence Pillars a little bit uh, at johnconzano.com. And then I went, you know what? I got to look him up. I would like to find him. All these years later, what, 45 years later, where is Lawrence Pillars? Well, it turns out he was in his RV driving to Las Vegas because he wants to be there, apparently for the Super Bowl. And he's joining us now. Lawrence Pillars, where are you right now? Set the scene for us. I am a hundred and about fifteen miles from Vegas, uh, at an RV spot for the night. I love it, man. Let's go back. I I just want to thank you for stripping that ball out of Danny White's hands. Jim Stuckey jumps on it. I mean, take us back to that feeling and in, in that year in your career. You're early in your career. You'd gone to Alcorn State. You're in the NFL. Niners are trying to. Win the NFC. What do you remember about that game? I, I remember uh, Bill had called us all to the side. It was a defense on the field, and Bill was talking to us and telling us that we got to get out there and play the best we can play. And uh, I, I basically was a defensive end, but he put me down as a defensive tackle at, at, when Dallas got the ball. And he said, well, y'all just get to him at, at the best you can. And the defensive line, we was all out there, uh, Dwayne Board, Archie Reese, Jim Stuckey, and myself. And all I think, all, all I remember is the guys, we got to get back and we got to do what we got to do because this is our chance. And I think I was playing over Dan Deardorff. And for some reason, I, I, I got the extra strength, whatever it took, to get up or get lower than he was and drive him back that he stepped on Danny White, and I hit Danny White as he was finished to get the ball out, and he fumbled it. And, man, stuck the fell on and ha, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say, you go on to the Super Bowl, and looking at the play, like I watched video of the play, Lawrence, and, you know, you did a number on Deerdorf and you bowled him over backwards, and then you, you end up right in Danny White's face, and, are you thinking knock the football out, or are you just trying to tackle him? What are you thinking at that time? I was thinking about get to him and make sure that he didn't throw the ball or pass it to someone else. I I it wasn't on my mind trying to knock the ball out. It was get to him, and and that was the situation. Once I got to him, whatever happened happened. Stucky jumps on the ball. You guys go to the Super Bowl. Do you remember the celebration at, in that moment and after the game in the locker room? And you guys had come a long way. Yes, yes, I remember the celebration. I, I had a few tears in my eyes. And, 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 and being a part of a team, knowing that knowing you play, always playing a role as being on the team, but to at that moment it was your opportunity to make something happen. 
And and I just thank the Lord that he allowed me to make something happen at that moment that I felt like, hey, I did just as good as anyone else did on that situation there. The, uh, the What do you remember, it, you know, of that time? Because you go on, you guys win the Super Bowl, you get to another one in 84, you win that one, you know, you're a two-time Super Bowl champion. But, you know, playing for Bill Walsh, having Joe Montana as a teammate, what was that time like in San Francisco? We all was, all the players and Bill, we, we was a family. And a, and a family that sticks together and plays together. You you know when one is a little weak and what you'll be able to talk to them and say, come on, let's do this. I mean, we was gelling. We gelled as one, not as individuals, just as a one unit on defense and offense with Joe and them had the ball. Was there a feeling of, you know, the Cowboys had been the champions. They had been obviously dominant, the Packers before them, but – was there a feeling of needing to break through in that moment, or or what did did you what did you feel like you were up against? Well, we knew we was we was a fantastic team. We knew the players on our team was uh, great players, and it was our time. And we knew that if we played as a unit, the way Bill had taught us and 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 coached us, that we will prevail, come out as champs. Lawrence Pillars, our guest. Defensive end in the NFL, two-time Super Bowl champion with the 49ers. He's joining us on his way to Vegas in his RV. He's uh, more than 100 miles outside of Vegas for the for this Super Bowl that's taking place on Sunday. Lawrence, you went to Alcorn State. You were an 11th-round pick in the NFL draft. I have to know, like, as a kid growing up, who did you root for? What were your dreams? My dreams were there was a, a guy from my hometown that had played in the Super Bowl and his name was Roy Hilton and he played with the Baltimore Colts and they had a parade for everything for Roy in my hometown in Hayhurst, Mississippi and I ran behind that float trying to get an autograph and I did not get that autograph so I made it up in my mind then if he can do it so can I and from that day on I just put more effort off into it, and I dedicated myself to trying to be the best that I can. And whatever team I hopefully I went to, I will make a difference. What did you study in college? Uh, biology. In, in I mean that's that's not a normal major for a NFL football player. I mean that you you've obviously had some aspirations that went beyond football. Was what, you know, when you get drafted in the 11th round, are you thinking right away, I'm going to make it? Or how soon did you know I'll stick in this league, I can play here? Well, I, I, I was looking forward to hopefully getting drafted early than the 11th, 9th in the 11th round. And I did not. And, and, and I had a chip on my shoulder. I wanted to show the rest of the world as each player that I went against that I'm just as good or even better than what they went. There was a few guys that went the first round that I made sure I tried to punish them in practice and in <laughs> a game. Lawrence, uh, you know, you get to the league. I got to think at your size, you you know, you played around, what, 6'4", 250, 255? Is, is that about right? Yeah. Yes, uh-huh, uh-huh. Did you need more weight? Did the Niners want you light? Did they want you as a pass rusher? What was What were those conversations well, it, like? Really, they drafted me as an outside linebacker, 
Well, no, hold, hold it, hold it, hold it. No, the Jets drafted me as an outside linebacker. So I played with the Jets for four years. Then uh, someone, uh, Dwayne Boyd, got his knee or something hurt. Yeah. And then the 49ers played us when Dwayne Boyd got his knee hurt. And they needed a defensive end. And Mark Gassinow was playing behind me with the Jets. So Gassinow needs to play. And I needed to go, so I feel that I got I, I sort of like died and went to heaven. There you go. I mean, and you look back and you think about those those uh, moments in your career that that take you into other places, and uh, you know, you go on and you win that second Super Bowl four years later. What was there a difference, different feeling the second time around, or, because you had been there once, or what was that like? That that feeling was knowing that we had the capability of doing whatever we wanted to as a unit, as a team. And all it took was, you know, uh, took all of us on defense or offense to be on the same page and, and play whatever the coach wanted us to do. So that's what the situation at that time. We were, we were gelling. We, we, we were having fun. You Do you wear the rings? Yes. I, I, I wear them sometimes depends on where I go. Um, and, uh, you know, my first Super Bowl ring, I'm going to say this, and I know my first Super Bowl, I, 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 not knowing that I was going to go to a, a, another Super Bowl, I said, well, my first ring, I'm going to get it, and I had got some bad knuckles on my hand. So my first Super Bowl ring was size 22, and again, it's Book of World's Records. So I said, well, at least I got the world's largest Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it just went on that we decided, and once it went on one of them, and then I made sure that the other one did fit. But that twenty-two was was that my first Super Bowl was my, and is my pride and joy. Yeah, and I, I got to think that first one's special, and the second one, you you guys go fifteen and one in the regular season on the way to winning it, and you know by then, you know the entire defensive backfield is going to the Pro Bowl: Ronnie Lott, Eric Wright, Dwight Hicks, Carlton Williamson. Dwight Hicks and the Hot Licks, as they were called uh, in that day. But, uh, you know, did you have a sense in 81 that it was the start of something, or were you just like, you know, you had no, you didn't know any better. You're just trying to get there and win it. Well, didn't know any better. I just knew that we depended on each other. When um, when Dwight and when we when it was a passing situation, Dwight and, 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 and what we call them, the, 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 the Licks, we – they always told us, if you give us three to five seconds on them, we'll cover them. So they covered them, and they gave us enough time to get to the quarterback. Our, our defensive backfield was wonderful. Lawrence Pillar's with us. Yeah, everybody talks about Joe Montana, but, you know, that first Super Bowl goal line stand uh, in the Super Bowl, it really was, uh, you know, a really hard-fought game, 26-21. You've been through two Super Bowl weeks what do you know? Like, tell us what that's like for a player. Uh, the hype, the ticket requests, the the stage, you know, feels bigger than football. Well, back then, the head coach made sure we stayed away from a lot of all that hype and, 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 and things. And we, as as teammates, we made sure that we try to keep other, each other on, on the right page. This day and time, it's a different story. Uh, it's it's an entirely different story. But back then, it was the coaches, it, it was the organization, it was the owner of the team. Everybody, uh, everybody just they treated us like we was kings, and we wanted to play like we was kings. Lawrence, after football is over, 
you go, you know, you go back home. When your career ends, what are you thinking? What was your focus at that time? Well, my, my focus at once my career was over was to just try to maintain, to make sure that I did the right thing that kept me out of trouble, and I had great family support from my my siblings, my, my mother. We just had, I had great family support, so it never was uh, such a big if, issue because some point along the way, we all had fun together. Yeah, after football, do you ever get the same adrenaline rush as you did with playing the game, or do you have to find other things? I get I get the same adrenaline rush. I try not to watch if it's not the Forty ers I'm watching. I, it really don't matter to me about the other teams or anything. The Forty ers is 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 part of my life. The Forty ers made sure that they put me in the right position at the right time to get Super Bowl ring. So I'm, I'm a diehard now. What do you think now? Because, you know, what came to my mind is you said 11th round pick, and I thought to myself, Brock Purdy. Like, there is there a chip on Brock sh- Purdy's shoulder? It, it probably is. He's a quarterback, uh, has a different position. Uh, defense, we delivered try to deliver pain or try to get to the quarterback. The quarterback has many more options he got to think about. Oh, wow. He got many more options he got to think about. But, you know, uh, I'm I'm on Purdy's team. As, as, as a fact, I was telling my wife the other day, I said, well, baby, Purdy can't, can't make it. Put me in, Coach. I'll play. <laughs> We're talking to Lawrence Pillars, former 49er. Uh, give me an idea. What happened with your, your graduation you know, you got you eventually got your degree. You know, you you'd come back home. You know, what what happened with all of that and and uh, sort of your your career, your educational career? Well, when I got drafted to the Jets in '76, I did not get my college diploma. And once I started professional football, um, college degree really didn't matter. Uh, and then once I got out of it and my wife kept encouraging me that I need a degree or something, and I went back to my university and talked to the personnel and everything and did what they wanted me to do. And uh, after 16 to 20-some years or whatever, I finally got my college degree. Lawrence, congrats on that. Looks like your family's doing well. You know, you obviously had a uh, career after football with – uh, both Subway Sandwiches and a trucking company and uh, working at the hospital in Mississippi and, and being involved in health care. It looks like you checked a lot of boxes. Oh, yes. My wife walked in here and said it was 40 years since I didn't I, before I got my degree after football, so she wanted to correct me that on that. You're, uh, you're going to Vegas. What are you going to do there? What's the plan, and why is that important for you to be there? <laughs> I, I'm there to support the 49ers, first of all. I'm, I'm, uh, if there's anything I can do or say to people to help, anything I can do to make sure that we come out on top at the end of the game, I'm there for that. If, if the morale or whatever it takes, like I said, I'm a diehard Niner. When you watch defenses in today's game, how different is – you know, how different is the defensive scheme? It looked to me on that last play in the NFC Championship game, you guys ran a little stunt on the line. Somebody looped around you. Uh, not sure who it was, but, uh, you know, give me an idea schematically. How how much more complex do you think the defenses are? 
Well, this day and time is entirely different. They got different philosophies, the way they do different schemes. Back then, there was some of the basic schemes of we could use our hand. We could use, we could do the head slap. We could, do, you know, you cannot do the head slap. You can't touch your head. Back then, you can play good football. Now they are protecting the players more, which I wish they had protected us more then. But they are protecting the players more, so you cannot do what we did back in the 80s. Father of 10, right? Grandfather of 16, is that right? That's correct. That's a big family reunion. <laughs> yes, it is. And we do have them every year. All right. Lawrence, hey, I want to thank you for making that play. I was 11 years old. You you made it easy for me to walk around the school playground after you guys won that game. Uh, it was a real breakthrough moment. But uh, what a career, and I appreciate you joining us and giving us some of your time. Hey, anything I can do to put out the word that the Niners, hopefully we're going to pull this thing out. It's not going to be easy, but we're going to pull it out, and I appreciate you. You can call on me anytime. Do you think he could sack Patrick Mahomes? He, he might be. Uh, he's pretty elusive. I can only do one play now. <laughs> you got one more in you? I, I got one play in me, and if he <laughs> runs too far at my age, I ain't going to catch him no high. <laughs> I appreciate you. You like the okay. Niners to win? You like them to win? you got to pick them. All the way. i got to go with Niners all the way. All right. Thank you, Lawrence. Appreciate you. Thank you for joining us. Right. Be safe on your trip. All right. Thank you. All right. There he goes. Lawrence Pillars, former 49er. we got Mike Walter, another 49er, three-time Super Bowl champion, coming up later in the week. J.J. Burden. A wide, former wide receiver with the Kansas City Chiefs. So, we're, you know, it's equal time on this show. This is like politics, equal time to both sides. Uh, we'll, do all, we'll do it all week in the run-up to the Super Bowl. Leave it here. you got the BFT statewide. I rather enjoyed that interview with Lawrence Pillars. I hope you did as well. Steven is in his RV. He's driving from Mississippi to Las Vegas. It's 100 miles away from the Super Bowl. 71-year-old Lawrence Pillars uh, heading to the Super Bowl. We'll, uh, later in the week, we've got Mike Walters, uh, three-time Super Bowl champion with the 49ers, who will join us. J.J. Burden, who played with the Kansas City Chiefs, will be on the show. Uh, we've got a couple of guests from Radio Row. I don't want to get too far down the, uh, the rabbit hole on, but uh, Jim McMahon, former Chicago Bears quarterback, may be joining us. I haven't confirmed that yet with his people. Apparently, he's running for uh, president. Have you heard this? Jim McMahon running for president. He's on the uh, cannabis ticket. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I don't know if I can put that one in pen. I'm going to pencil it in right now. So uh, Kyle Turley wants on the show as well as he does every year during the Super Bowl. And we've got a few other guests like that potentially on the program. What'd you think of the interview with uh, Lawrence Pillars? Long time ago, two Super Bowl champions. No, I think it was great. Um, I loved his mentality just, you know, as being an 11th round pick. I mean, think about that, John. 11th round pick, they've had to shorten the draft to seven rounds. So basically, you know, he's an undrafted guy just trying to fight his way onto a roster. Um, and when he goes, you know, either I tried to uh, get after the quarterback or just cause some pain. Basically, that's what he said. Like, I'm just trying out there to hurt people or get the quarterback. Like, he knew what his job was and knew what his role was, right? Like, that's what the 49ers needed was him to just cause chaos out there, 
get after the quarterback. That's what he was supposed to do, and he did it. He played it great. Like you said, you know, he's one of your uh, unsung heroes to win those Super Bowl runs. So it's just like yeah. th- those are the important guys on all teams, right? Like any sport, you need those guys that just do the dirty work, know the role, and do it well, and don't have to complain about it. And he was just so grateful for everything that he had in the NFL. I mean, it was cool to hear. We got a trade deadline in the NBA coming up. Speaking of unsung heroes, I'm looking at the Blazers roster. I'm looking at the new collective bargaining agreement that's got some penalties for for teams that are just outside the 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 luxury tax. There's you know these these secondary aprons that will be uh, will cost some teams dearly if they get too high in the payroll. Stephen, I'm kind of thinking the Blazers might be uniquely positioned with some guys on this roster that are marginal talents with marginal contracts to be a, to be a seller at the trade deadline. Um, along that note, is there an unsung hero on this Blazers season? Yeah, I think uh, it'd be Malcolm Brogdon. I, he's been really good this season. Like he's been consistently maybe their best player all season long. I think, and he's really held it down when we. I wouldn't say that we expected Scoot to be awesome from day one, but we thought a lot more. We thought to be able to come and play right away, and he really couldn't, right? Like, he needed a, some some seasoning, and Malcolm kind of came in and has steadied that guard role to be able to handle the ball, and you're right. I think the Blazers are in a position where they have a guy like Malcolm Brockton, who is a veteran in this league, who's played on the biggest of stages as he did last season with the Celtics, and was good. So he's a guy that can play in the playoffs, and he's on a, a one year or a, he has one year after this year on his contract. It's a reasonable contract. I think the Blazers will be able to look to trade him. Um, but it's one of those things where he's kind of been the, he's been the guy this year, and he's proven his value. I think in the NBA, where he's he's a player in a big time situation that can handle the basketball and can make a play for himself, can make a play for others, can make a jump shot, and that's hard to get. And I think right now, when you look at the Blazers roster, he doesn't necessarily fit with all the young players with Scoot Henderson. Anthony Simons, Shaden Sharp, all 24 and younger. Like, that's the future backcourt. Brogdon at 31 doesn't fit in. So I think they're in a unique spot where they have a good asset uh, at an important position that can be very helpful in a playoff series. So I do think the Blazers are in a very good spot going in the trade deadline. But it'll be interesting to see what they decide to do because there has been talk that they like Brogdon. They like the fact that he provides a little bit of leadership and expertise for these young guards. But in my mind, you you, you got to get rid of these guys because they're not part of the future. You got to you got to cash it while you can. I think this is a perfect year to do it if you're a Blazer. If you're He's making twenty two and a half million dollars as well, and twenty two and a half million next season. Um, you know, it's probably a number you'd like to uh, to get out from under and go younger with. Um, I don't think we're going to see a bunch of blockbuster big trades because you know I was I was reading more and more about you know the changes in the collective bargaining agreement that are coming. It's going to penalize some teams that try to go out and make lopsided deals. They're not going to be able to do it under the new CBA. They're going to be limited in what they can do. It's going to cost them dearly. One general manager um, telling an NBA reporter that the trade of Damian Lillard to the Bucks. they called it the Bucks running to the buffet an hour before closing time, meaning they made the deal and there's going to be a significant um, penalty. The Bucks. Apparently, look. I mean, the Bucks look like they're just trying to go now. Like they know they have Giannis, they have a closing window. You know, there's nothing in sports that says win now. Like making a deal that has you know no thought about what what is happening in two years. And so, that said, I'm looking at Milwaukee and the way Doc Rivers has started, and I'm kind of going like, this doesn't feel like their year. I don't know. There's a lot of runway here. Is there a move for the Bucks? What do they need for to in your mind? To, to become a team that is a true contender, or are they? 
I think they they I would put them in the contender category, but I don't trust them one bit. And so I don't think with the way the roster is constructed, they have to be considered a contender because they are all in, like you said. I just don't trust them going forward with Doc Rivers as a head coach. And I think what they need is they need a guy that is willing to basically go out and guard the best, the other team's best player and not get the basketball very much and do it really well. And then when he needs to knock down Nopa 3, right now they kind of have Malik Beasley in that role. He's not a great defender, and I think you look at the Bucks' defense – and, you know, I put some blame on Damian Lillard as well because he's not a great defender, but that defense is not very good this season. And I think that they need some of these guys that are not, you know, focused on the offensive side of the ball. They're focused on the def- defensive side of the ball. And I think that's what the Bucks really need going forward because you look at the Eastern Conference and you're going to go up against Boston. Like, they got Jason Tatum. They got Jalen Brown. They got Kristaps Porzingis. Like, you can't just throw out guys like Damian Lillard out on those players. You have to throw really good defenders at those guys that can make it hard for them. So, I don't trust the Bucks going forward, but you have to put them in the contender category because, like you said, they're all in. They are all in, and there's no doubt about that. I am uh, looking at the true contenders. Boston gets talked about now with Joel Embiid's knee issue. Philadelphia, not so much. Who are you really including in the group that can win it? Because right now, um, you know, the Pac-12 tournament in men's basketball and the NBA championship feel as difficult as possible to predict like we know Arizona is really good but they've been beaten by Stanford and Washington State in men's basketball and gosh the tournament could come and it could be Oregon it could be UCLA it could be Washington State I also think um uh I also think that uh you know you're looking at the NBA and like who do you really trust that's the thing I mean the Pac-12 tournament by the way is going to be awesome I mean the Pac-12 is just crazy basketball you look at the NBA I mean with Embiid, the uncertainty and the injury, I think Philadelphia is great when Embiid plays, but I can't trust that injury now. So if I'm looking at the East, it's Boston and Milwaukee. And like I said, I don't trust Milwaukee, so it seems like it's Boston or nothing. The only other team in the East, if they can make another move, and they can, they have draft capital, is the Knicks. The Knicks have been playing really well uh, as of late. Jalen Brunson is a legitimate you know, MVP caliber player. If they make another move for a big-time player, they could jump into that category, but I'm not ready to put them yet. And you look at the Western Conference – you know, Oklahoma City is number one. Minnesota is number two. I, it kind of goes back to the whole like Detroit Lions thing. Do I trust the Lions to make the Super Bowl? I don't because it's just the history of the franchise. But maybe the talent of those teams are so good and they can't get to the NBA Finals when historically young teams like this don't make that big jump. So I don't trust the Thunder. I don't trust the T-Wolves. I think in the, in the West, it's the Clippers. It's the Nuggets. It's the Suns. And that's about it. So I think... What that proves is if you're one of those teams is on the fringe, you know, you are in Oklahoma City, you are in Minnesota, you are a Lakers, you're a Mavericks. Maybe go out and try to make that big move because I think it is wide open. Like I don't there's not a lot of teams that I really trust besides I think Boston is like one of the one teams I really trust in the Eastern Conference or the NBA to get there. So you make a big move, I think this could be a year where a team kind of comes out of nowhere and has a chance for an NBA championship. I think uh, you're right, and I think it's going to be interesting. And I, like you, I look at Milwaukee and I go, I don't see it. And maybe part of it is my bias. Like, I just don't want, you know, we've seen Rasheed Wallace leave the Blazers, go on win a world championship with the Pistons. I think that hurt some Blazer fans, hurt their hearts, because the Blazers came up short in the Western Conference Finals. And there are some Blazer fans rooting for Dame, saying, you know, if he couldn't have it here, we want him to have it. But um, I kind of think, you know, his... He didn't pull a James Harden. He was loyal, as loyal as you can be by NBA standards. 
But I, as I went back today, I was reading some of his comments about wanting to go to Miami, wanting to be, uh, wanting to get out of Portland, and I just kept thinking, like, you know, it's great that you wanted to get out and now want to dictate where you go, but he could have left without signing a contract, and he could have picked his destination. He, he did ask out. He did not want to play in Portland. Yeah, I mean, he did say not here, and so I'm kind of left going, you know what? Like, I don't know if you should be behind that. As a Blazer fan in the end. I don't know. I, I root for Portland on the trade deadline to get it right. Make a move that continues to add assets to what should be a pretty good team with some young draft picks coming out of this draft. All right, we're back tomorrow. we got a, we got another uh, great show for you. We'll focus on Vegas and the Super Bowl even more. The bald-faced truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.